You're Missing Out is sponsored by Audible. As part of my New Year's resolution, I told myself I'd read more and listen to new audiobooks. With Audible, it's easier than ever to find titles and time in my routine to reach my goal. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Right now, you can visit audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast and get two audiobooks on behalf of the show. You can download thousands of different titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. Download the free Audible app on your favorite smartphone and tablet devices without ever losing your spot. Having a hard time deciding what to listen to? No worries. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. This is the best way to find a new title to fall in love with, all while supporting your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast to start your free trial and get two free audiobooks on us. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. All right, gentlemen. I want to know what director you would pay any amount to have a conversation with. And I want to know how much money you're willing to spend on said director. <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about this. You know, there are directors that I love a lot. Um, you know, I have my little holy trinity. I've I've talked about it in our ultra and all that, but uh, I've I've briefly met Spike Lee. It was an incredible moment. But in terms of of somebody whose brain I really want to pick and who I think would be difficult to hear from under any other circumstance, I mean, I wouldn't pay to have a conversation with Jean Luc Godard because he'd just be a dick during it. Like we saw how he treated Agnes Varda in Faces Places. He wouldn't treat me any better. But I was thinking about. It, and I feel like my answer is George Lucas, and not because of Star Wars. In fact, very much the opposite. I really like those odd experimental films that Lucas made when he was a young filmmaker. I think that there's it's it's so interesting how much he is involved in the work of Coppola and Spielberg, and and what a visionary he is outside of Star Wars. I would love to have a conversation with George Lucas that no one is seemingly having with him. Uh, that isn't about technology and isn't about Jedi's or anything like that, but truly like, hey man, let's talk about some of your art films. Let's talk about old time radio and race cars, and let's talk about the movies that you loved, whether they're John Ford or Ingrid, uh, Ingmar Bergman or anything like that. Let, let's talk about that. I would love to hear George Lucas talk about things that are not the designated George Lucas topics, and how much I would pay. Let's say. One one three eight million dollars for THX. Tom, since this is a hypothetical, I'm going to go with someone uh, that's not alive. I'm going to go with anybody I can have a conversation with. It would be uh, John Houston. Uh, that guy is a character and a half. He's a raconteur. <laughs> He's had quite the life. There's definitely a n no no shortage of stories that guy can drop on you, and then just the the talk about movies and the movies he's made and all of that stuff and i just think he'd be a great fun just conversation just grab a beer and just hang out and just talk would be uh pretty great in in my eyes so yeah i would pay oh boy um yeah i'd pay like two three mil easy Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. 
Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we honored the 50th anniversary of The Godfather with special guest Patrick Willems. Our guest today is uh, filmmaker and video essayist Patrick Willems joins us today. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome, welcome for quite the episode. Uh, I should have asked up top. Do you do you did you want Patrick H. Willems, Patrick Willems? You know, do you have a preference there? So I know uh, the, the video brand. Yeah, I'll actually I'll I'll put this on the record here for anyone who cares. So no one ever has to actually call me Patrick H. Willems. I don't even tend to credit myself that way. That's just the name of my channel, and the H is in parentheses, implying that it's optional. I only use the H because when I made the URL, when I set up the YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Patrick Willems was taken, so I threw in the middle initial. But uh, but no, I am I'm I'm not. Anytime, you, like if if I ever put like a directed by credit anywhere, it's there's gonna be no middle initial there. So don't worry about the H. <laughs> Uh, we're so excited to have you here. Uh, speaking of video essays, you know, we're all big fans of, uh, the content you put out, uh, on YouTube in particular, you know, I think uh, all around for us, one of our favorites is, uh, this past year, the two part video that you did about the career of Francis Ford Coppola. Thank you. Um, and in fact, uh, we wanted to pay tribute to that video. So, um, Tom, what are you drinking right now? What am I drinking? I am drinking the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Merlot from 2018. And uh, Kyle, our producer, what are you sipping right now? You no, know, I got that uh, Coppola uh, Rosso Red, my friend. And uh, of course, I have the Diamond Collection Gold Label Chardonnay from 2014. So, you know, we wanted to make sure we paid our respects. I love and respect this so much. I, <laughs> I, I, I really wish that I had some, some Coppola wine here myself. Uh, believe it or not... I did uh, – so if anyone who's seen that the, those two videos I made, I bought a really, really, really big case of a lot of bottles of wine uh, <laughs> and then was uh, you know obligated to make videos about them. And um, I, I have finished all of that wine. Uh, I finished it a long time ago, actually. Well, you know, not, not much else to do in a pandemic other than drink wine and watch uh, films by Italian men. That's so, true. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, I think – especially if you're not leaving your home that's probably the best thing you can do. Are, are there any plans for any more wine but you did tcm wine club coppola are there more wine based videos planned for the future you know it's funny i was talking with someone about this earlier today about how how funny it is that like you know any of us who like do stuff on the internet have you know as, as much as this is it feels kind of you know gross to use these terms. It's like you know we all, to an extent, whether intentional or not, have like a personal brand and things that are like associated with us. And I think it's really funny that like wine has become a major part of my brand when I don't really know anything about wine. I'm not a wine expert. I can't take a sip of wine and tell you like the the various like hints and flavors i'm getting what the mouthfeel is like i don't know about that stuff at all i uh i don't know i, th I think almost every wine i i taste is is pretty good um and yet <laughs> i've made multiple videos of uh heavily featuring wine um i have like a lot of images of drinking wine and pouring wine in the uh the title sequence we made last year for the videos um so right now i will say i i don't 
current. Well, mm, you know what? I'm going to cut myself off right there. Uh, oh. In the near future, there will be uh, some wine appearing in in, in 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 some pretty big ways in stuff that I make, and that's all I'll say. Ooh. All right. Ooh, look at that exclusive. Yeah, scoop. I asked if you if you wanted to come on the show. You were very uh, grateful, uh, very grateful that you said yes. And when I sent you the list of all the films that we were covering in season two, I remember saying to Tom and Kyle, "Well, he's probably sick of Coppola, so I can't imagine he's going to pick The Godfather." You wrote back and said, "I watched all of Coppola. Might as well do The Godfather." So, yep. <laughs> that tends to be like you know. I was recently on uh, on another podcast that also gave me like a big collection of a massive assortment of like random movies to pick from. And that time I, I made the total opposite choice. And I was like, I'm going to pick a movie that I'll probably never do in a video. I'm going to skip over all the ones that are like directly connected to stuff that I've covered. And then this time, I don't know, you caught me on a different day in a different mood. And I figured let's just lean into something that I've already extensively covered. And uh, you know what? No regrets. Had a great time watching The Godfather again. So we were we were like one day off from you picking like Dodsworth or something. Really, is what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Which I have not seen. Going off your videos, uh, we're lucky we got The Godfather because, uh, as you made the running joke in the video, you don't talk about The Godfather much in that video. Uh, so it was either The Godfather or Gardens of Stone for Coppola's. You didn't really talk about that much. That is true. Gardens of Stone is uh, not – I don't think that's anyone's favorite Coppola. I don't think it's, it's in anyone's uh, even top five Coppolas. No. I I watched it today, actually, for the first time. Uh, I, I did enjoy it, but I, I would be curious if you uh, went up to James Conn and said, do you remember this movie Gardens of Stone? And I feel like he'd probably say, what are you talking about? How would you get in my house? <laughs> I, I feel like it would probably either be that – or he, it would you'd suddenly learn that it was like to him the most important movie he ever made, <laughs> and he cares that, uh, more about that than like Thief or The Godfather or, or like anything else. Uh, it, it's one of the two. There's no in between. There's no. Oh yeah, yeah no. I remember that well. We had a pretty good time. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely no middle grounds with that man. No. Now we will get into The Godfather in a second. You know, since Tom brought up goes, I do have to point out, and I want to squash this right now. You know, in in your video, you were uh, not as favorable about the movie that is, quite frankly, my favorite Coppola. So you know, uh, I might suggest that perhaps is this you revisit one from the heart. It is absolute. I love that movie so much. Oh, he is he is deranged for one for the heart. I love, I love it, so it too, much. but he is out of control for that movie. What do you mean, Tom? That's suggesting, like, I don't know, I bought off of eBay the Japanese movie program for it just so I could look at the large pictures and have saved in my wish list the actual prop of the light-up Natasha Kinski wall that somebody is selling in Los Angeles for hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's, I mean, so like, I, I, I will say, I don't love One from the Heart, but I went into it so ready and hoping I'd be just. I'd walk out of it declaring like everyone's been wrong for decades. It's a master. Like it, it, it. Everything about it on paper is so up my alley. So much the kind of thing that I would like. The kind of movie that I would just be like fanatical about. And it just like there's so much I there's so much good stuff in there and so much I appreciate about it. And I just 
didn't especially enjoy the experience that much. And so I'm so now, sorry. Let me, no, that's uh, now I have to ask uh, tied to that. How do you feel about Streets of Fire? Oh, the, I the love very Streets similar wire. Okay, there we go. Yes, there we go. There we go. I got him on my team. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, no joke, maybe, like, once every month or two, I just rewatch the last, like, eight minutes of Streets of Fire. Uh, oh, my God. The best it, ending ever. It, exactly. And, and, and here's the thing. Streets of Fire has one very, very important thing that uh, I think One from the Heart doesn't have, which is it, it, it lets itself, like, have those, like, you know, euphoric musical performances that oh, yeah. I think oh, One yeah. from the Heart like I, I just desperately needs you get that raul julia dance though you, you get do that raul julia dance I, I mean, like like my favorite part of the movie it's there but like everything about the movie it's it's like it, it tiptoes right up to being a musical but won't yeah. let them sing it's like you said it's like new york new york like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too of being we're a musical but not really and yeah you know the Raul, the Raul Julia scene would be much better if uh, he was dancing to Jim Steinman songs. I think that's just pretty much a scientific fact. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think you could say that about just about every single movie uh, ever made. I mean, even The Godfather. Yeah, even The Godfather. <laughs> if if Mo Green got took one right to the eye, set to, you know, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I mean, everybody would be happy. Everybody would be happy. It's true. It's Not true. Mo Green, but, I mean, everyone else would. Look, uh, you know what? I'm... I'm going to call up my close personal friend, Francis, uh, <laughs> who, who I did uh, speak to for 30 seconds on a Zoom call once. Oh, that's right. And, yes. um, and we all know he loves, <laughs> he loves recutting his movies. I'm just going to say, Frank, baby, have you considered adding Jim Steinman's songs into The Godfather? And I think he'll be into it. He's going to probably tell us no, but I think I might do that for the rain people. <laughs> hey. I mean, that could be exciting too. Also, wouldn't surprise me if uh, now that he's finally going to make Megalopolis, oh, maybe God, that. Yes. Here's my crazy prediction: that uh, probably that the odds of this happening are slim. But if it happens, I will look like the world's greatest genius, and so <laughs> I'm going to say it right now. I predict all of Megalopolis will be scored to uh, Jim Steinman's late <laughs> '80s album Pandora's Box. <laughs> Of, like, all his original uh, stuff, not for, like, you know, other vocalists. That's my prediction. <laughs> that this is basically going to be, like, it. a, it's like gonna be like a Jim Simon, like, jukebox musical sci-fi epic. Well, that's why it's going to cost about $100 million. He needs to get, he needs to clear those music rights. Here, here's here's a funny thing I learned about that that album. Um, it's out of print, and I, I, I had a music supervisor look into this. Uh, I believe those songs are all as they say, dead, as in no one currently owns the rights. <laughs> so I can't explain I why mean, I know this, but uh, it is a thing that I am that I believe to be true. So we have talked about the end of the, the Coppola miracle run um, with One from the Heart, which, depending on who you are, you either include it in that miracle run or not. Let's talk about the start of it. Let's talk about The Godfather uh, inducted into the National Film Registry. Let's hear why the National Film Registry picked it. They said, Adapted from Mario Puzo's best-selling novel, The Godfather became a landmark film of the 1970s and now ranks in the highest echelons of filmmaking. Francis Ford Coppola directed this multi-generational crime saga, which is one of the most widely imitated, quoted, and lampooned movies of all time. 
Marlon Brando and Al Pacino star as Vito Corleone and his youngest son, Michael. It is the late 1940s in New York, and Corleone is, in the parlance of organized crime, a godfather or Don, the head of a mafia family, which also includes Sonny, James Caan, Fredo, John Cazale, and Connie, Talia Shire, with Diane Keaton as Michael's girlfriend, then wife, and Robert Duvall as the Corleone's consigliere. Coppola instructed cinematographer Gordon Willis to underlight each scene to enhance the dark mood, and the hauntingly melancholy score by Nino Rota complements that rich visual darkness. So that's what the National Film Registry had to say uh, for what makes The Godfather so important. As for us, you know, uh, we talked about it on Star Wars, and this is another case for us, I think, where, you know, the whole goal of our show is to look at the films that have been selected by uh, for the National Film Registry, and explain why and get into why they were selected, why they're so important. This is one of those movies where you just instinctually, <laughs> the answer in your head, I think, sometimes becomes because it's the fucking Godfather. Like, it's so ubiquitous. that it, Yeah, you know, we've we've had a few of these so far in our first season and even like in the second season so far where it's just like, all right, what what do we even say about this like is there like why what there's no argument to be made it's just like i mean just watch the movie guys i'll be honest with you the, the reason i picked this movie is because i didn't want to spend a lot of time doing this so i figured we could just uh wrap it up here <laughs> um it's the godfather nothing else needs to be said um great good night that's it listen i love the hustle i love it i love this move i gotta watch wrestling in 30 minutes anyway and i gotta get ready so um there, there is something, it's so interesting, like, obviously in research for this, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of research, I was listening to, reading a couple books, I was listening to Coppola's commentary, and I was listening to, um, this gave me a chance to revisit the audiobook of Robert Evans' The Kid Stays in the Picture, uh, which I'll take any excuse to revisit, quite frankly, because uh, it's a hoot, but uh, it, what's super interesting about it, I think, is is you made this point at the start of your video, uh, Patrick, where you talked about how now one of the things we complain about is when young indie directors get plucked up to do a major studio blockbuster, like a Marvel movie or something like that. And you're right that that is what happened here. You know, this is, I don't know if you would define it as the absolute beginning of new Hollywood. Cause you can obviously trace that back to Bonnie and Clyde or, you know, something along those lines. But this is a case where this, this young visionary kid is just plucked out and basically given uh, a massive, ma you know, massive, massive book to adapt in a way, all because Robert Evans decided he needed an Italian to direct the film, and because like seemingly everyone else turned it down. Yeah, yeah. I think he offered it. To, he said he offered it. I, Ilya Kazan was a name he named Costa Gavras. He said like well, offered it to him. Wasn't like Sidney Pollack offered it. Yep. Yep. Sergio Leone was offered it, and he wanted to do Once Upon a Time in America instead, and uh, that took, took him, him ten years decade. to make. Yeah, and, you know, kind of came, like, four or five years too late since Heaven's Gate killed every version of Hollywood where that movie could be a success. Yep. Yeah, um, but, but, Tom, look on the bright side. If Leone had chosen to do The Godfather for uh, Robert Evans, he would have dealt with a tumultuous production and a lot of people trying to rend control over the edit from him. And, and obviously, it was smooth sailing for Leone on Once Upon a Time in America, so... Oh, yeah. Everybody knows Once Upon a Time in America. There, there was only one cut of that movie. Everyone's seen the one cut of that movie, and it, it was a great swan song for the maestro. <laughs> um, but, yes, this is this is one of those cases where – and, you know, you, you listen to them talk, and uh, I'm assuming, Patrick, you've read or listened to Kid Stays in the Picture. 
Believe it or not, I have not. It is uh it's one of those things I've just been meaning to get to for years. Yeah, get get that audiobook and and just listen to it on the subway. It will bring you uh such joy. That voice is oh. <laughs> every like it, it, it's like uh this past year like I I finally got to the Devil's Candy and so yes, so yeah. I think this is the year I finally get to the kids days in the picture. But I'm telling you, do the audiobook. It's okay. just, you need to hear because you, because you know his delivery and just that. So I picked up that spaghetti twirler. I said, "Listen here, you're gonna make a picture for Paramount." And can you believe it? He said to me, "Let me think about it." Was I bothered? <laughs> Not a chance, baby. And like the shit. Yeah. Did you see it's, the thing? Uh, was it last year when like his like uh, there was like the estate sale for like mm-hmm. his home and all the random shit that just. Yep. just went up for I like I I really considered like bidding for some of that stuff. Uh the only thing I would have bid on is any memorabilia from his 2003 Comedy Central show Kid Notorious, oh, uh, yeah. which I think about more often than anyone should. <laughs> uh he had a he had a one season animated show where he played himself and fought Kim Jong Il. I think that was when I first became aware of Robert Evans because yeah. I was like I don't know 15 at the time and I just I didn't even watch the show I just saw ads for it and yeah. uh, and I was like what 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 is this and then I never <laughs> watched it it's fascinating I tried so I was revisiting it to get to the stuff about the godfather and I, I'll tell you spoilers for anyone who hasn't read it yet it takes a weird detour because he starts going uh, so I was making preparations to do The Godfather. I have the hottest book on my hands. That's when I get a call from my buddy, Henry Kissinger. He calls me up. He says, Nixon's trying to throw me out. And for a solid 40 minutes, it's about how Robert Evans helped Henry Kissinger not get fired by Nixon. What? This is, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, so um, last, uh, last year when I was working on... Uh, this uh video about dick tracy and i was reading uh the um the peter biskin biography of warren Beatty, uh mm-hmm. which is incredible and one of my favorite things in in there is that he kept getting distracted from writing the screenplay for dick tracy because his friend senator joe biden kept calling him up asking for <laughs> political advice <laughs> and uh and i thought that was pretty good but this henry kissinger thing is way better well, because it all comes around. So he's best friends with Kissinger. They talk about how they're, they're both like young kids playing around, having a great time. <laughs> this all comes to, to a head because uh, it's the premiere of The Godfather, uh, which nobody believes in except Evans. So says Evans. He throws a big party, hires a bunch of guys dressed up in 1930s, like Jimmy Cagney gangster suits mm-hmm. to work the party. And the whole big thing is it's a big premiere. He needs a big celebrity. And Brando, he wants Brando to come, but Brando is dealing with the fallout of his ex-wife had just kidnapped their son. <laughs> so Brando is refusing to attend because they had just recovered the son. And Evans is trying to arrange it that Brando and his son can be reunited at the premiere. Because that would look nice, he says. Uh-huh. This falls through. <laughs> it's the last minute. He's panicked. He's like, I need a big name. And that's when I called him up. Kissinger. You owe me a favor, you bastard. <laughs> Kishin just says, I'm supposed to be having a meeting about the conflict with the Soviet Union tomorrow. And I said, you can, but tonight you're at the premiere of The Godfather. <laughs> so so Kissinger was the VIP at The Godfather premiere. So what I'm learning here is that it just, it just seemed like the world was so much better back then. 
<laughs> nothing it's... like this happens now. <laughs> That's trust me, and we haven't even gotten into when he needed Kissinger to fake a letter to the government of Malta so that Evans could get his cocaine-filled suitcases while filming Popeye. Oh I we get God. this is a totally different episode. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is. Honestly, yeah. you should probably just pivot to a Robert Evans podcast. I nothing I, would make me happier personally. Or, or what you could do is you could do kind of like season by season, and like once you finish Evans, which would take like five years, uh, then you can move on to like a John Peters podcast. Oh no! See, I would just do the heads of Paramount. Oh, so I would, there I would, go. I would start with Evans. You get to do Michael Eisner, and then you get to do the current head of Paramount, a.k.a. the lead actor of the movie Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Right. Uh, you get to cover it all, because that's the man leading Paramount now, is the lead actor of Chud 2, Bud the Chud, and director of Good Burger. Never forget, everyone. <laughs> Never forget. You also, uh, you don't have many people today just admitting that they helped uh, make the world a worse place by keeping by helping Henry Kissinger keep his job. It's, it is so goddamn wild. Well, just, and, and, just out there, man. <laughs> and also, don't forget, we're getting that uh, that mini series about the about Evans and like the making of the Godfather, right? Allegedly, I mean, things have not been going well for the cast of that. So that's we'll true. see. We'll that's see true. who's in it by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, has that? Uh, do have we got any, gotten any updates on that recently? I don't know. Wasn't I believe Army Hammer was attached at one point. Yeah, then he got then he got, he got fired, fired, and he was replaced by Miles Teller, who was <laughs> causing some uh, anti-vaxxer nonsense on set, causing about, some uh, some shenanigans there. Apparently, Allegedly. Miles Teller is actually vaccinated now. So, it's funny. I said allegedly for Tom's thing, and I almost want to say allegedly for yours too, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, we don't know. Uh, I don't. No idea. But who knows? Personally, if you get to kids' days in the picture. The story of the making of The Godfather isn't even the most interesting. The most interesting is Robert Evans. Uh, the reason we have The Godfather at all, and this is true, we should give a little background to this. Uh, and Patrick, you can speak to the Coppola side of this, but on the Evans side, the reason The Godfather even comes together, Robert Evans was an actor originally uh, who manages to become head of the failing film studio Paramount uh, right around the time they were acquired by Gulf and Western. And... Uh, and he manages to get the rights to two books that at the time nobody was interested in. Uh, in the case of one, The Godfather, by the time they go into production, the book's a massive hit. But prior to The Godfather, the one he acquired the rights for, it was a manuscript that his assistant told him was a piece of shit nobody in Hollywood wanted. Uh, and the only reason they even put it on Evans' desk is that an actress that they had recently signed a five-picture deal with, Ali McGraw, uh, was refusing every other script. Evans takes the script. He says he cried. Everybody else thinks it's terrible, but he pushes it through. He pushes that boulder uphill. Paramount hates it. Arthur Hiller gets signed onto it and then quits. Uh, and then he ends up picking up. Uh, no lead actor wants it. He goes to everybody. Uh, Martin Sheen, he names every guy up and down the book. Jack Nicholson, nobody wants the, the male lead. Uh, and he ends up picking up a soap opera actor uh, off of Peyton Place named Ryan O'Neill. That movie becomes Love Story, one of the biggest hits of the year 1970. And as a result, Evans is viewed as a genius. Uh, so when Evans gets The Godfather and nobody wants to do it, the only reason he is able to convince Paramount to take a flyer on this and hire Coppola 
which he only wants to do because he gets the idea in his head that, well, an Italian should direct a movie about Sicilians. Uh, the only reason any of this gets passed is that he was the guy who made Love Story a massive hit when it should have been a failure. That leads to a situation where, at least on the Evans end of things, he's looking Coppola, and he brings on Coppola because he thinks, you know, we need an Italian on this, but he's also... Evans is intervening a lot in terms of cut, score, casting, because he thinks, well, I'm the guy that made Love Story happen, so I know what I'm doing. Meanwhile, of course, on the Coppola side, Patrick, you talked about in your video how he was a he was doing basically Corman films and then indies, really. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, also we can't aside from Finian's for- Rainbow. I was about to say we can't forget about Finian's Rainbow, uh, a very important movie. Um, Whoever I mean, could it, forget about Finian's Rainbow? It is. Have you guys seen that movie? I have. I watched it recently, and what's funny is I watched your Coppola videos when they came out, which means I should have been prepared for this. And yet, when Keenan Wynn is in blackface in the movie, I was still thrown for a loop. Yep. Oh, still yeah. not prepared for that. I I, I really did not ex- – I expected that movie to be a lot more like Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, not, not, not quite. I mean, if anything, it was a very important movie because, A – that's where Francis met George Lucas, mm-hmm. uh, and B. That's I, that experience seemed to like really motivate Coppola. That, that, that's where he learned what he did not want to do, and like the kind of filmmaking experience he did not want going forward. And uh, and so that you know maybe without that we probably would not have had everything that followed. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to bring up just to tie a bow on the talk about the making of the Godfather miniseries. Okay, please. Because what I forgot about is that there are two projects. There's the miniseries <laughs> right. and right. the movie. Yep. Uh, and the miniseries, apparently, here's an article from last July about it starting production. And so that's that's the miniseries, the one that does have Miles Teller, and Dan Fogler is playing Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, Matthew Good is playing Robert Evans, but then there's the Barry Levinson movie called Francis and the Godfather, where Oscar Isaac plays Coppola and Jake Gyllenhaal is Robert Evans. I, so, oh, Gyllenhaal's so, going to chew on that for all. Oh, I can't wait. But this means that suddenly we have like an Ants Bugs Life situation <laughs> with the making of The Godfather and Robert Evans. Yeah, and much like Ants in a Bug's Life, one of them has canceled cast members. Uh, yes! You know, just saying. One one has a thing where you go, them? Oh, dear. Uh, also, yeah. I guess uh, I guess Bill Hader was too busy to do either of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his Robert Evans is so good. It's Look, so good. I, I, I have not read The Kid Stays in the Picture. Don't worry, I've seen that episode of document, uh, Documentary Now. Oh, Enzo Antolini. Um, <laughs> have you, by the way, speaking of scene... Um, have you by now seen You're a Big Boy now? I know that that was completely missing when you first made your video. Uh, you know, I have not. I, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I, I have a copy of it. And I just got really, really busy with the following videos and never got around to watching it. That's, that's fine. I just noticed the other day when I was prepping for this that somebody had uploaded it and it's entirely on, entirety on YouTube. I was going to send it to you and be like, oh, shit, it's finally up. And then I realized by now, surely someone has seen this and let you know that it is available to see now. Yeah. Uh, um, someone actually, I think right after I released that video, just like 
had like a, a digital file, like an MP4 of it, and just sent me an email. So I've had it for a while, have not gotten around to it. It's not uh, not particularly good. Uh, yeah. I hate to be so down, but it's kind of just like... I mean, it was a student know. film. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very, like, a lot of guys were making those kind of movies then. I, funny enough, Lloyd Kaufman has a graduate-esque movie that he made when he was a young filmmaker. Oh. Uh, that's very similar to this. Yeah. That's a weird one. It's called Battle of Love's Return. It's actually my favorite film he's made. Wow. Uh, but it's very <laughs> weird. Yeah. It's very odd. Um, But I, I the reason I bring that up is that I, like you, in prep this, I haven't seen every single Coppola film. Uh, because Twixt is really hard to find, uh, yeah. amongst other things. Garden of Stone is hard to find. Yeah, I had um, to import Garden of Stone from the UK, baby. I feel like I just rented it last year on, on like Amazon or something. I, that's I mean, I, true. I, I, I just, <laughs> I just buy physical media. Just like, I mean, oh, I, that's out. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna buy it. I, I will, I will say, uh, Gardens of Stone was one where, um, I, I wanted to, I like, if he's like, I buy a lot of Blu-rays for, like, for the videos to, like, rip them and I have the movie files to edit with. Gardens of Stone was one where it's, like, well, it's only available as, like, a $35 Blu-ray from Indicator. And yep. uh, and I was, like, I don't need to – as much as I love physical media, I don't think I need, like, a specialty label copy of this movie that I, I'm barely going to mention. So, yeah, I didn't mean, buy it. hey, you know, whatever works. Physical media, baby. It's fun. Always weird to see what movies make it. Like, Jason Reitman the other day was like, oh, so I just found out that Thank You for Smoking doesn't have a Blu-ray, but the Garbage Pail Kids movie does. So, you know, (laughs) it's always fun to see the big... Uh, the, what movies are getting these deluxe 4K restorations like the Shawscope box set that just came in the mail today. Oh, it but, finally you know, showed up. Good. Yeah, it finally showed up. I ordered it before you and I got it after you, you jerk. <laughs> yeah, and and like I, I remember uh, – it's funny. I, I think the Jason Reitman thing came up in an interview that he did with Mike Ryan who pointed that out to him. Yes, and, yes. And I, I know because like Mike Ryan had written an article like the year before about how for some reason the movie Cocoon – is not available to watch anywhere. Like the like the Blu-ray is out of print, even though it was one of the highest grossing movies of like '85 or whatever. Yeah, it's all, all that stuff is weird. Like you can only buy George Romero's Dawn of the Dead from the UK because Richard Rubenstein is just a pain in the ass and will not release most of uh, Romero's movies for uh, unless he gets an exorbitant fee, which everyone says no. Wow. And you can't find almost any Ernest film uh, streaming or on physical media. I found that out the other day. Yes, no one's looking for impact. them. Um, no one's me. looking for them. But I, you know, I uh, in oh uh, in in oh that's where the wine's coming in for his next videos. That's where <laughs> yeah. the wine's coming in. Well, in 2020, I did uh, as as a birthday present for uh, my friend Matt, who appears in many of my videos. I did give him a DVD box set of all the Ernest movies because he is a lifelong Ernest fan. And I'm I, impressed. I don't think they have Blu-ray releases, but I was able to get like a DVD set for like twenty bucks. I checked Amazon the other day on a whim, and there was nothing. It's so, and I, they're not streaming anywhere except I think Ernest Saves Christmas is on Disney Plus. I think what this it. means is I bought the final copy in the world. <laughs> Patrick foiled <laughs> your plans a year ago. <laughs> and now it's a collector's uh, He is the author of all your pain. 
I love that there are people who are definitely fans of Patrick who are like, he's talking about The Godfather. I'm so excited. We're a half hour in and we're on Ernest. And yet um, again, like his videos, we're not talking about The Godfather. <laughs> There's nowhere else I'd rather be than a half hour in and talking about Ernest. <laughs> the, um, but so I... Uh, the Burncast? Talking, talking <laughs> about... <laughs> We're changing the show from You're Missing Out to You Know What I Mean. That's just the, the new title. We're <laughs> <You know. laughs> um, early Coppola films. Uh, so I watched them all, and I think the interesting thing, and maybe you had a different experience, Patrick, but I watched them. I even watched the ones that you did not uh, dive into into your video. Amazingly, you did not spend much time talking about The Bellboy and The Playgirls. I don't know why. Uh, you did not devote a half hour to his bizarre having to shoot new footage for a German softcore movie. Um, yep. I mean, I, I, I watched little bits of all of these movies. And, okay, I, I think I should mention, since we've talked a bunch about my Coppola videos, I, I, I feel like I need to explain a little bit about the process of those. Because sure. there weren't supposed to be two videos. The way what was happening was it was supposed to be just one video. And... With these videos, I don't have, like, a really hard deadline, but because they have sponsors on them, they're, like, scheduled way ahead of time, and I'm supposed to, like, aim for that date. And what was happening with this is that I was really trying to fit it all into one video and really and, – and, and trying to be selective about, like, okay, what are the things that are important? Like, how, how much time do I spend on these different things? And then I was just reaching a point where I'm, like, falling apart and not sleeping, and I'm just, like – I. And I was like a week over schedule. I'm just like, I, I don't know. How, this video is so long now. I don't, I, I can't fit it all in there. And I just decided I've got to split it in half. And so if I had known it was going to be two videos ahead of time, I might have spent a bit more time on some of the wacky early stuff. Uh, but at the time, I was really trying to all fit it into one. So there you go. Uh, the, reason I, the reason I bring up the two soft core films and the the russian sci-fi re-edit and all that is that i don't know if you had this but i was really thinking that when i watched these early films i was going to be able to do kind of like when you watch like i love the early experimental george lucas films that he made like pre-thx i think those are a blast martin scorsese shorts and the early stuff that he makes pre-taxi driver you watch those and you go Ah, I can see the beginnings. And the one thing I found is is watching everything from Dimension 13, Finian's Rainbow, maybe a little bit in the Rain People, but other than that like there was a weird thing where I watched all of those films that he had made prior to The Godfather and I have to admit like had I been there in 1970, I would have also gone, "How are you giving this guy The Godfather?" You know, I don't I don't you don't see the evolution in quite the way you see in a lot of other filmmakers well, well i mean yeah i but i also think it's kind of something that patrick gets into the videos as well which is that after the godfather 2 i mean this guy really doesn't have like an immediate look or a thing oh, for like, sure. he's just he's just bouncing around everywhere with so many different styles and stories and tones and all of this i mean the only thing that really uh, connects them all is one the th the theme of you know he's always dealing with family and just the ambition of his stuff is always pretty high. I mean it's kind of yeah it is wild that this guy and also like nobody 
really gave a shit about who was directing the godfather it was a trashy book that was popular but it wasn't like oh we, who, who's directing the newest neil simon movie it's like, yeah no, it's well some, it was some, it was it was like nonsense. love story it was like yeah. love story and that was trashy. the i mean i do i do have to imagine like one thing i like to think about is you know now everybody's so uptight about book adaptations like our, our friends over at blank check have talked about like everyone being so uptight about every single detail of twilight in the mm-hmm. adaptations and all that. And have have either of you guys read Puzo's Godfather novel? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have not. It's, um, Coppola had to do a lot of work. I'll put it that way. Um, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just now thinking about like, if the Godfather was made today and they like, they made the same movie, but they knew like, Oh, we're going to make the Godfather two having a post credit sequence of Vito Corleone <laughs> coming off of the boat on Ellis Island. See, like, you'll, you'll see that stuff in Godfather two. For me, it's more about like, there would have been people in the audience just going, I wonder if there were people in the audience going, they, they cut out the entire part about the woman who is the only woman who can handle Sonny's giant genitals, which <laughs> well, is a huge yeah. part of the yeah, book. Yeah, a lot of stuff about Sonny's dick so in that much. book. I, uh, interesting. So, okay, so I was thinking about this when I was watching the movie again earlier today. Uh, like, one of my, my main thoughts is I, I was wondering about the book, which I have not read, because the movie, I feel like uh, – also, to be fully clear, I feel like, you know, this it, it usually goes without saying, but I I love this movie and I genuinely do think it's one of the best movies ever made. So not not a hot take, but I just wanna <laughs> yeah. go on the record immediately with that. But Patrick's about to shake up twenty twenty two with that take. Oh, Jesus. Buckle <laughs> up, guys. I but in I, I feel like in particular in the second half of the movie, basically, especially after um when Michael comes back from Sicily, uh, mm. it jumps forward through time pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, he, he shows up to see Kay, and she's like, how long have you been back? And I always forget that he says, more a than a year. year. Yeah. And and I when, it, when it's doing this, I was just thinking, like, okay, haven't read the book, but it wouldn't surprise me if the book fills in that stuff and and it you know and and, it, and there's just more stuff that's probably inessential uh but just more stuff in and around those scenes and well, the thing that i was also thinking is the thing is if this movie were made now it would not be a movie this would no. be yeah. a mini series this would be like What's 10 it? hours long and you know maybe it would be pretty good but i'm just i you know there's uh, there's obviously a lot of discussion about like oh like the death of uh of like mid to high budget movies for adults and it is it's truly insane to think about the fact that this was a giant blockbuster when it came out this was not like a prestige oh, award yeah. season like oh like like you know maybe it'll like you know squeak to like a hundred million worldwide. Like, no, this was a full on, like, like huge blockbuster that played to like, to everyone for so long. But, uh, but yeah, that this would not be a huge financial hit these days. And it also just would not be a movie. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm really glad, like, I, you know, it's funny. Like someone I know saw this movie for the first time like a year or so ago and um you know I uh don't always agree with this person's takes on movies but their take what 
I remember them saying to me, it felt like I just watched a whole season of TV just like chopped up into three hours. And (laughs) but they meant this as like a negative thing, like like it felt like, you know, kind of like rushed and they they wanted more time with it. And I'm just like, I I don't see that. I don't want this to be a season of tv i like this as a movie and it trusts you to pay attention and uh and it's but the thing is it is pretty it's it's pretty dense and pretty somber and you really do have to pay attention especially when it comes down to like who are like who the non-corleone characters are it's just wild to think that there was a time when this movie could be such a huge like straight down the middle blockbuster well, it's interesting you say that when you talk about films, this and we'll touch on the other stuff in a sec. But one thing is, it was a huge. I always think about um, my father talks about going to the movies in the seventies, right? When he was, you know, a teenager, and he talks about the one weird thing is that the seventies, like you look at the box office for the seventies, and they're all films for adults, right? Yeah. And we always talk about that, and people who are like the film Twitter people. Uh, always generalize and go, ah, look at the box office then. Look at the hits in the 70s as opposed to now, our superhero movies, to which I always think that's a bit myopic because they're ignoring that in the 70s, a lot of the top hits were disasters happened to famous people. Yep. But, you know, like Airport and Poseidon Adventure and all that. But also a point that he makes is that in the 70s, yes, there were always movies for adults, but that's also because there was nothing to take families to. If you had a little kid, you either took them to a movie for adults and kind of went, I hope you don't remember this, or you took them to the one Disney film a year or two Disney films a year, and they were Gus the Field Goal Kicking Mule or something. I was going to say, that was was also during like a low point for Disney. Yeah, and nobody else was doing anything. I mean, that's kind of why the 80s has the boom of the opposite thing, of of the uber colorful family films, because now all of these baby boomers have kids of their own and don't want to take them to go see Kramer versus Kramer. Um, But to your point about the book, the interesting thing is, if I remember correctly, they don't do much with that time lapse of Michael in a year. What the book does include is the veto stuff that goes into part two. Yeah. It's actually a pretty like straight ahead adaptation, to be honest, other than cutting out the veto stuff and cutting out the, the way too much stuff about Sonny's massive dong and, (laughs) The, it's it's the, so the, much the sur- like the surgery she has to get to like fix her vagina and then she gets pregnant, what? which I guess, which yeah. I guess, which I guess Coppola is like, oh yeah, there's this stuff in the book that Sonny knocked up the girl. I guess I should bring that into Godfather Three. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and just like a little bit at the beginning about Vito's consigliere just died, Genco Abidando, who's the you know Genco olive yeah. oil company's named after. Yeah. But it's like really pretty much everything in the movie. Is is straight from the book. They barely do any changes. I mean, it, with the exception of so here's basically where and Coppola acknowledges this in his commentary. He is he, I mean, the stuff of young Vito that shows up in part two was in the book. They cut that out. The stuff yeah. that he thought was very tawdry about Sonny's massive genitals and how the bridesmaid that he's sleeping with in that one or hooking up with in that one scene uh, in the book. The reason he's hooking up with her is she is the only woman whose genitals are accommodating to the size of his. Which is a plot um, point in Magic Mike XXL. There you I go. Know. Thank you, Soderbergh. I was about to say, was this the inspiration for Big Dick Richie's storyline? So, I mean, somebody honestly needs to ask Soderbergh about that, because that's a little too, like, is there many storylines where that's a plot point? 
but yes, and then a whole subplot where she goes to Vegas and there's a surgeon who goes down and, and repairs things and then they have a kid, which presumably is Andy Garcia in Godfather 3. But uh, Coppola acknowledges that for him, the big thing was because he wanted to recontextualize this movie, his approach that he went to Evans with, because Evans was trying to court him to make this movie. Coppola initially didn't want to do it, but as you point out, Patrick, you know, because THX 1138 for George Lucas had, had not done well, he needed to recoup some finances, and Lucas kind of pushed him to, to take it. He told Evans, I'll do it, but it's not going to be a mob movie. It's going to be a metaphor for capitalism, and it's going to be about family. So Coppola's work really goes into fleshing out the stuff with the wedding and really going into all of the family dynamics. And then once Vito Corleone gets shot, he says that's when the momentum of the book picks up, and that's when we just kind of go page by page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that makes this so interesting as an adaptation is that it's a tawdry novel. It's a pulpy, tawdry novel, and it's not a particularly good novel. And yet, because Coppola does so much work to set up those characters at the beginning and to really get you to understand Vito and Sonny and Michael and Fredo, and he gives you that emotional stakes, you are far more invested when the shooting happens in the movie than the book where it's just kind of a, you know, gangland drama. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, just it it's really kind of just all about, you know, uh, it's not the story you're telling, it's how you tell it. And, you know, I mean, this is just the, one of the great examples of an adaptation because, like you said, it's trashy, but he gives it this serious Shakespearean tone to it that makes all of it work better than, like Patrick said, if you just made it a TV show and did everything exactly the way it was and had, you know, an episode from Mary, uh, I think her name's Mary Mancini's epic quest to Vegas to get her sunny demolished vagina fixed there's there's some stuff you just don't need and some stuff uh you know you just you just execute it in a certain way and francis may he did it right what you know that's the thing like what, what what can you say francis did it right i mean last thing on the sunny dick and then we will move on from that i promise because kyle's probably just got his face in his hands screaming now um yeah, this is last what like mary did want. <laughs> there is uh there <laughs> like there... mary did there is – that's the character's name. I forgot. I truly thought you were insulting a member of my family. Um, so there is one Easter egg about that subplot in the movie. Coppola slipped in one joke about it because he thought it was so stupid. The, the, the hands? Yes. So you caught that, right, Patrick? Wait. Uh, say that again? At, at the wedding, there is a shot that – the shot is meant to it, – it's there just to show that Sonny's wife sees him walking off with the bridesmaid. Mm-hmm. But right before she sees him, she's laughing at the table with some of the other women, and she is making a size oh, with her oh, hands. Oh, yes, and she's like, and like she's showing, uh, to, moving her hands. Yeah, further, and they start giggling. Apart. Yep, that is Coppola slipping in a joke. He's like slipping in a reference to that dumb tawdry subplot, as though to tell you, I know it's there. I know that's so much of the book. That's all we're gonna say about it. That's really funny. It, it what it weirdly kind of reminds me of, even though this is not quite like the same kind of case of like cutting out a stupid unnecessary thing. But I remember uh, when I, I I went to see uh, the 2019 Little Women, 
mm-hmm. uh, a, a movie I, I really love. And I hadn't read the book, but I saw the movie with my sister, who was a big fan of the book. And I was afterwards, I was saying, I, I mentioned that I, I just, I, I that an image in the movie that I found really funny is just in in a couple of shots, like it just cuts to Florence Pugh just kind of like squashing her nose with her fingers. And I was like, that's a funny thing. And then my sister was like, well, actually. That's because in the book, there's, like, a running thing where that character has, like, a problem with her nose and, like, wishes she could, like, you know, it was flatter and stuff like that. And uh, and you know what? That that just didn't come up in the movie, but they found a way to add, you know, a little nod to that element in there. Just a, a little bit more about the, the whole thing of just, like, you know, Coppola being an interesting choice for this, considering he didn't have a... His resume was not full of, like, you know, big literary adaptations and stuff like that. And uh, it is, like, he's both, like, not an obvious choice, and then also, especially, like, knowing everything we know about him, he seems like the world's most obvious choice. Uh, Just in the way that, like, you know, not just being Italian, but, like, you know, working with his family for all of these years and just, just like it, it, like the one-to-one of just like, despite, you know, one being a criminal business and one not, but like in, in terms of like the, the Coppola family business and like family, like dynasty and enterprise uh, with like generations going into the family business. And then like what the Corleone family is, it's like, I feel like the world is just so lucky that things just like aligned this way and everyone else turned it down. Cause it's like probably no one else was as perfectly suited for this. And no. I think like, because like, I, I think really the key thing is just that Coppola just seems to get the family dynamics, like on yeah. such a fundamental level. And like, I, I think a major part of what makes this movie work is again, it's, it's long and it's pretty dense and there's like a million characters is just like he got like both the casting really, really right in every regard, which is wild because a lot of these people were like basically unknown uh, when he cast them in this, but, but also just like, you really feel like you really get not just like who everybody is, but what they're, uh, what the the interpersonal like family dynamics are between everyone like really really quickly even like Fredo is barely in this movie like considering yeah, barely like, what in it major... until Vegas yeah like like he he shows up briefly like like uh, early on and then he gets sent to Vegas and then you see him in Vegas but considering what a major part of two he is like I always yeah. forget how little he's in one and it and yeah. just yeah. like just with like with just a couple scenes you you get his whole deal you get how the family thinks of him uh you you understand the the role that he plays there um as you know kind kind of the connor roy of uh of like <laughs> of, of of their whole thing and uh and yeah it, it it's just like it's it's incredibly efficient storytelling and also a testament to like how much casting can basically do your storytelling for you to an extent. Yeah. And oh, yeah. and I think I mean, that's like that's that's the the major thing that he he got right. I mean, I, he's he's even said it himself that he's like he's not the most like adept man at like the inner workings of all the crime story stuff uh because as a lot of people have pointed out over the years, he fucks up how, like people calling him Don Corleone. He, it, if it shouldn't be Don Corleone, it should be Don Vito. That's the proper like Italian mob way of like referring right. to each other. 
uh, you know, just little things like that. But yeah, it is that, you know, I'm Italian. I grew up with an Italian family and you just see all the little details that he only he could have brought to the table of the yeah. way they interact with each other and the way they like eat and the way they, you know, all, you know, the way the wedding is and how like boisterous everyone is. And like all of this stuff comes from you know, a lot of this stuff comes from Puzo because Puzo's Italian too. So he brought a lot of that stuff because every Italian family has the fucking nut job like Santino, the, the dipshit like Fredo, the one that doesn't want to be a part of the family like Michael, the, you know, the Italian spoiled princess like uh, uh, Connie. And, you know, it's just the, 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 the little details make the biggest difference because otherwise it's just another yeah. crime story. And... and that's that's what Evans knew. I mean, Evans' whole thing was was because nobody wanted to make The Godfather because the distributors basically said a gangster movie has not been successful in decades. Right. Yeah. Gangster and movie to, to be them. Warner Brothers things. Yeah. Gangster movie to them was Cagney. It was that. And especially a Sicilian movie on Nobody Wants It. And uh, apparently, like, two years prior, or three years prior, uh, Kirk Douglas had made a gangster movie, the title of which I am forgetting now, but I have it in my notes here. Um, But Kirk Douglas, The Brotherhood. In 1968, Kirk Douglas had made a movie called The Brotherhood, uh, and it tanked horribly. But Evans felt, he said, well, the difference is, he said, you know, Evans looked at it all, and he goes... Yeah, you know, I looked at all the pictures, all the gangster pictures the last 20 years. They were all directed by Jews. Jews like me. <laughs> what do I know about Italians? I had to get myself an Italian. And the beautiful thing about it is you're at that point going, "What? A, you know what? Pretty uh, pretty sensitive, uh, Mr. Evans. You're, you're understanding the ideas of representation and film and needing to have voices behind the scene. And the, right as soon as you think that, he goes, so I called the studio. I said, this is going to be a spaghetti picture. I want a spaghetti director. I want a spaghetti twirl and actor. I want, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, basically, I'm pretty convinced that the rant waltz goes on and Tom and I are both Italian. So I feel comfortable saying this, the Walt uh, rant waltz goes on where he goes, you know, listen, you Ginzo Goomba, all that. I'm convinced that's just verbatim. What Robert Evans yelled at <laughs> Coppola at some point while making this. Well, um, probably when they were trying to fucking fire Al Pacino from the goddamn movie. Well, that's so that's its own crazy thing. When you talk about casting. So Evans in his, in Coppola's commentary, Coppola claims he wanted everybody that he got right. Yeah, Evans owns up to the fact that that he did not want Pacino, the studio did not want Brando. However, Evans claims that in fact he was the one that pushed for James Caan. Evans claims that in fact Caan was a compromise, where him and and uh, Coppola were going back and forth, and he said to Coppola, "You can have Pacino, but you gotta put Jimmy Caan in this." Because I forget the name of the actor, but whatever guy Coppola wanted was, like, radically taller than Pacino. And Evans said, no, they got to be the same height. And Coppola did not want to go with Khan because Khan was not Italian. That is how Robert Evans frames it. But Evans does own up to the fact that he did not want Pacino. But eventually Coppola put his foot down and they screen tested everybody, including Martin Sheen. If anybody's interested, you could find uh, footage of Martin Sheen's screen test out there for Michael Corleone. Wow. Well, I mean, sh- I mean, I mean, shit. They, they, they still wanted to fire him until he just sat them down and showed them the, 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 the Salazzo execution scene, and they were like, "Okay, we get what the kid's doing. He can stay." Well, now here's the interesting thing about that. 
Evans and Coppola have different stories about that, too. Of course they do. They both claim that they were the one that fired the AD. <laughs> the way Coppola puts it, it's that one of the first things they shot within like the first week is when Vito and Sonny are meeting Salazzo. Mm-hmm. And the way he puts it, the studio hated it. They hated the footage. They thought it was bad. They thought he was talentless. And they told him... Like and they they were like, well, this is this is bad, Francis. You're gone. You know this this is no good. And Francis said, I can reshoot it. And they said, no, 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 don't reshoot it. And so then he turned around to them and he said, well, all right. Here's the thing. I fired four people because if you think it looks bad, these guys are the reason it looks bad. And he fired the AD and three other people on the crew that Coppola says he felt were disloyal to him. His thinking being, if I fire them, they can't fire me and replace me quickly because they'd also have to replace the rest of the crew. And then he goes in and shoots the new scene. Conversely, the way Evans tells it, it was that the AD got in touch with him. It was the AD or the editor. One of them got in touch with him and said, Evans, this kid is a hack. I'm watching his dailies. And look, he can shoot gorgeous images. Nobody, you know, Kubrick couldn't get better performances out of people and you make better images. But you can't cut it together. There's nothing to cut with. It's, you know, it's terrible. He doesn't understand continuity. And Evans claims that he told him, send the dailies over to my place. And he said him and uh, Ali McGraw were like watching the footage and Evans turned around. And he goes, no, this kid's got a picture. And then he <laughs> determined that the guy who was saying Coppola doesn't know how to edit was actually trying to get Coppola fired so that he could take over the job himself so that he cans the guy. Either way, there was a lot of backstabbing going on on the set of this thing. But Coppola and Evans both take credit for weeding out the traitors. Interesting. Pretty it's fitting so for this weird. movie. Yeah, it's wild. But no, I mean, the other thing, too, when you talk about Coppola and his details, like, you listen to his commentary and he talks about the stuff about the sandwiches at the wedding, right? Yeah. The guy would go, he was like, yeah, that's how we would do it. I would go to weddings and there would be guys with these wrapped sandwiches, you know, and they would just kind of toss them out. And the old man singing the dirty song, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. What I love about that, by the way, if anyone is wondering, uh, it's a song about a hammer, but the hammer is a metaphor. And I'll let you guys figure <laughs> out what the hammer is a metaphor for. The thing that I find so interesting is that Coppola brought a lot of authenticity because Evans wanted an Italian to bring that authenticity. And yet the weird thing is every single authentic Italian thing that Coppola brings to it, Evans objects to along the way. Up to and including Evans absolutely despised the Nino Rota score. That which, um, That is just fully deranged. Right? For anybody... <laughs> For anybody uh, listening uh, who doesn't know, Nino Rota is uh, a phenomenal film composer who had done a lot of work for Federico Fellini. Eight and a half, anything like that. In fact, this same year, uh, he did the scores for both The Godfather and Fellini's Roma. Very different scores. Uh, And yeah, it's an iconic score, but Evans didn't want it because he wanted something more... um, He thought that wouldn't sell. He thought it was too weird, too abstract. And Love Story had had a hit score. So he was trying to convince Coppola to change it. Coppola told him, hey, I'm not going to change it, so you have to fire me and hire somebody else and get them to change it. And they agreed to do a test screening. And if the audience liked it, then they would keep it in. And the audience loved the score, and obviously it became a huge hit in its own right. Uh, did not get an Oscar uh, nomination, but was a huge hit. Oh, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by just like the multi... Even like multi-decade uh working relationship between coppola and evans because mm-hmm. like it th- they made multiple movies together but it real uh 
they really seem to, things seem to be pretty strained there. Like I uh, because like Evans produced the Cotton Club as well, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, and he talks about that in his audiobook too. Of course. And like you know, and I know Columbus talked about how because you know he did obviously did the uh, the the re edit of of the yeah. Cotton Club, but that Evans was the one who convinced him to just like really like hack down the storylines for like Gregory Hines and basically the black characters and uh which then he realized was a huge mistake and and like i i know some of the like uh like the the letters that Coppola wrote to Evans during production of the Cotton Club have like become public and it is i mean i i feel like you could write a whole book just about the re- the working relationship between these two people Oh, and trust me, you get to hear some of those letters read by Evans in the book. Ooh, I mean, isn't a lot? What isn't a, a lot joy. of what happened on the Cotton Club was that uh, there might have been some uh, criminal elements involved that maybe made Coppola go, "I guess I should make these changes." What? What? Tom from Robert Evans, the man who smuggled bags could, of cocaine into Malta? No. I mean, how could I speak so ill of a man? Like Robert Evans, the man who helped Henry Kissinger keep his job. But um, at this point, by the way, sidebar, Patrick, at this point, what Patreon tier do I have to donate to to get the video that's just the camera on you, headphones in, watching your reaction to the Kid Stays in the Picture audiobook? That's uh, just a bunch of smiles, nods, and chuckles. Like, what, what tier do we have to go in on? That's a good know? question. You know, I, the, I mean, the, the real question is, is of course, uh, will other people uh, pledge to get that to happen? <laughs> I, I've seen your fans and your commenters. Probably. I, I think Imagine, we got a shot. Like, like, imagine if Jason Blum just goes, oh, yeah, you know, so that time I, I, ha- I helped Steve Bannon keep his job. <laughs> and, then I, and then I invited him to the Forever Purge. And it's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Why are you admitting this? What you're saying is Robert Evans was really, really lucky that Twitter wasn't around back then. Oh, my. Imagine- I mean, I think he's just very, very lucky. Yeah. That yeah. nobody knew that Henry Kissinger was a goddamn war criminal. I mean, the other thing is, if Evans had a Twitter, he would be. But the other thing, the thing about Evans, truly, and you get this from listening to him, he was so smooth. And it had such a vibe to him that he is one of those guys who, like, it, it's it's like he says shit and you wonder, why does he get away with this? You just right. kind of, like, nod and because and, it's the way he plays. It's just like, listen, did I think that we had a good picture on our hands? You'll bet I did. So I looked those executives in the eye and I told them where they could shove it. And you're like, hell yeah! And then you realize he's talking about, like, something that he basically made into a money laundering scheme. <laughs> Um, but listening to him read Coppola's letter, he's like, it was Christmas Day, baby. I got a letter from Francis. You know, we were making that piece of shit Cotton Club movie. He sends me the note. He says, he says, Evans, I have for very long tolerated you claiming credit for every element of the Godfather. But it has gone too far. Let the record show you were nothing on the Godfather. <laughs> Happy Christmas to me, baby. I responded with some cheer of my own. <laughs> I just, it's weird. Like, he describes the way, oh, my God, we can't even, try, and wait till you get to the anecdote about how he convinced Warren Beatty to get Paramount to waste half a million dollars to airbrush a, a larger penis outline on the poster for Heaven Can Wait. What? He was a maniac. Oh, my God. I, is, I mean, uh, 
Yeah. I am now so excited to see Jake Gyllenhaal play him. <laughs> this gets him an Oscar, right? It is going to make his performance in John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch look like <laughs> Brokeback Mountain. Sack Lunch Bunch? He's going to make his performance in Okja look like it's an, a fucking <laughs> Ozu movie. <laughs> Uh, Just I, a I, sedate I, performance compared hope, to fucking Robert Evans. Uh, Tom, I hope that is the pull quote on the poster. Makes his performance <laughs> in Oakjaw look like a fucking Ozu movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a push. I'm going to try to find someone on that picture and say, hey, do I have a tagline for you? <laughs> but you will do it in Robert Evans' voice. Hey, maybe here, do I got a tagline for you? Why is your Robert Evans Charles Bronson? I don't know, because he probably thought he was Charles Bronson. He w- It's fascinating. Um, uh, yeah, we can't. I, we'll, listen, I think we have Chinatown next season or the season after, and we'll, we'll go over all this again when we talk about him producing the two Jakes. I, there's a lot of Robert Evans to get into. Oh, Jack, Nic- Jack Nicholson wanted Robert Evans to play the co-lead in the two Jakes. Anyway. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> it's truly deranged. But that's the thing. That the thing about this movie that's so fascinating is it's the kind of thing that you would look at and you would think because it's it's from that era of New Hollywood. It's from that auteur era that we all hold up. So you would think it was the kind of movie that one man had total control over, and it's very much not. So much of it is improvised. You know, a couple of fully owns up to leave the gun, take the cannoli is uh, a line that the actor improvised. Yeah. I, I... I, I I will say also so uh you know I I mentioned earlier the uh life changing time when I spoke to Coppola for thirty seconds on a Zoom call, um, <laughs> I will I will say so a little b- bit of background this is relevant I promise, um so when uh, so the reason I made those two Coppola videos was because the Coppola Winery had put up this uh this offer this deal on their website. That was an $800 case of like 30 bottles of wine that also came (laughs) with a signed screenplay for the movie The Conversation that also gave you access to like a Zoom conversation with Coppola. And uh, and people suggest I do this. I make this a Patreon goal. I did. It happened. We reached it. I, I, I made it. Got a lot of wine. But also then there was, you know, the the Zoom call with with Coppola. And uh, and it was basically just kind of a thing where we – the way it went was uh, in the chat. There was like, I don't know, maybe 20-something of us on there. Uh, we could like – there was a moderator, but in the chat we could ask a question. And then what they would do is they basically just go through and then be like, okay, next question. And then, then you'd, you'd go on and you'd ask Francis your question. And it was actually – it was really fun and really interesting. And I had no idea what he'd be like on this, and he was he was really delightful. And a thing that was really nice about it is that uh, despite, you know, look, if Coppola came on there and was like a standoffish dick who was like, I made a bunch of the best movies ever, like, say the fuck out of my way, like, I'm going to talk about how awesome I am, uh, I would totally get that, and I would not actually be mad. But what actually was the case was, was really nice was he was so quick, constantly, to just like defer credit for all yeah. the good stuff to other people, and and to and mostly just wanted to talk about like his collaborators on everything, and and a thing like w- with the Godfather, he was basically just like every good line in that movie came from 
like came from Puzo and was mostly said by his mother. Like he's like, I basically came up with none of that stuff. It was all just like the smart people that I worked with. And, uh, and it was really nice to see that, uh, you know, like, like, you know, and, 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 and apparently a lot of this stuff did just come from Puzo's mom. And he talked about, I was listening to the commentary and he talked about one thing he's proud of is he said he made sure Puzo did not have it in his contract to get top billing on the film or anything like that. And he made sure that the title card said Mario Puzo's Godfather. And he said that when it comes to adaptations, he's always particular about making sure that he credits it as S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders or most famously Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. That that's very important to him to credit the original writer. And hell, I mean, he kind of had to fight a little bit to get uh, the studio to let Puzo write three. Yeah. He was like, no, this is Puzo's thing. Like, I'm not doing it if Mario Puzo doesn't write it. Like, that's ridiculous. Which is such an and- interesting thing because – you know, as you've talked about, like the original book is not an especially great piece of literature, and you, yeah, and you'd think it would be the the kind of thing where you know, as, like even if like Puzo was contractually obligated to write the first draft, that he'd just be like, uh, oh, I'll, I'll write. You, you did your part. You can go away now. We've got it from here. But like he, you know, like Puzo co-wrote two and three you know, co-wrote the Cotton Club. Like, he really kept working with the guy. Yeah, and I mean, there was a time, I think, in the 90s or maybe early 2000s of, like, questions about Godfather 4. Francis, you think you'd ever do it? And Puzo had died, and he was like, no, Puzo's dead. I'm not, you know, there's nothing to go back to. The story's done. Puzo's dead. Uh, That's not, you know, my my part of the Godfather's over with. It's it's interesting, too. I mean, I think about this a lot because... You know, especially recently, I think there's been a reckoning with regard to the auteur theory in general, you know, and the way that we approach it, uh, particularly after Karina Longworth did that uh, exceptional uh, series on Polly Platt and, you know, her effect. Right. The, I, please tell me I got the name right. Yes, Somebody you did. Thank you. Yep. I, I, I sometimes say it wrong and I'm like, I'm going to feel like an ass. You know, and about how much the other collaborators do. Francis Ford Coppola is kind of the ex- the shining example of what we actually mean by an auteur which is not this guy who has control over every single thing and supervises the the trailer edits and everything but rather just somebody who has particular themes that they explore and particular you know I- ideas but is also you know, is accepting of other collaborators and accepting of making this picture and, and, and just has a vision, but isn't necessarily, you know, has to do every single thing themselves. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure a big part of that is his Italian, the Italian aspect of him. His family is, uh, you know, bringing his family along and his family are all artists and everything. So he sort of brings that kind of attitude to the filmmaking process, working with a lot of the same people over and over again. Uh, I'm sure it also has to do with, you know, the the time in the weeds, so so to speak, in the world of cinema before kind of exploding with The Godfather, you know, making stuff for Corman and shit like that. You know, you don't really get an ego when you have two days to make a movie in a castle because yeah. well we had we have two more days in this castle you want to make a movie or you know being one of five directors on the terror and just you know he he, he kind of had the right everything kind of like we said before like everything kind of coalesced with coppola to kind of just 
get him to this place where he could make these movies and he doesn't have the ego to say, well, it's all me. Obviously, I'm the best. I'm the greatest. And, you know, anybody that says otherwise can go straight to hell. I, I think that that's a really good way of putting it because this wasn't – you know, his career is not one of those situations where he did not, you know – make some brilliant debut film was like bestowed the title of like you know a wonderkind who's uh and then just like offered infinite money that like and you know it where it then goes to his head and he's and he like buys into his own hype like he he spent the years in the trenches doing unromantic work uh just trying to scrape together little movies you know had uh his experience with finian's rainbow a like you know a studio film with a decent sized budget that he didn't like working on. Cause like you look at like his, his, that ultimate dream of like, uh, you know, zoetrope pictures and, and one from the heart. And it, the whole thing was basically just like this sort of like really collaborative filmmaking collective where they bring kids in to teach them about filmmaking. Yeah. And it seems like very democratic and like everyone has access yeah. to everything. And he's, you know, and look, I'm sure Coppola is a complicated guy. I don't mean to just be like he's like the the, the most wonderful man who ever lived, but it really does seem like <laughs> there's that you know that he could he could totally have a huge ego and be an asshole who is like I am the auteur, and it just doesn't seem like that was ever really his thing. No, because I mean, he, after The Godfather Three, you know, he could have had a real fucking axe to grind with Winona, you know, dropping out of that movie last minute. But no, he was like, eh, whatever, it's fine. You want to make Dracula? Let's make Dracula. Great, whatever. I mean, he, he you know. strikes me as the kind of guy. Very similar to younger Spielberg, which is ironic because Lucas helped them both. But it strikes me, they both strike me as the kind of people who, if you came to them as a fellow creative and you were making suggestions to make the movie better, they had no ego about it at all. And they were very open. But it does seem like if you came to them from a money man perspective, if you came to them and just kind of went, yeah. hey, this shot's good enough, move on. Hey, you know, whatever, we've only got two days. Like, listen, we can't give you what you want. If you came to them from that angle, it seems like there was definitely conflict there. Because Coppola talks about one of my favorite anecdotes is that his original script did not open the way the movie opens. His original script just starts with the wedding, right? And the beautiful yeah. shot, everybody dancing. And that a friend of his was looking over the script and said, Well, you had done such a great opening to Patton. Which, of course, you know, the movie Patton has George S. Patton coming out in front of the giant American flag and do the speech about real Americans and said, why don't you do that with The Godfather? And he decided to subvert that and start small. But because he took that suggestion, rather than just go, ah, fuck you, I know what I'm doing. He took that suggestion and decided, I'm going to take one of these requests, you know, one of these requests of a Sicilian man on his daughter's wedding. And in doing so, he makes that scene a microcosm, a history lesson about the real reason why organized crime spread in Italy in the first place. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, so many of us, uh, we're both Italian, you know, both of us, you know, Tom and I, and, and our family came here for various reasons. But, you know, the reason my family came here was the spread of the Camorra and the Cosa Nostra and all that. And that's because, and what that guy captures so brilliantly, what he captures brilliantly at the monologue the first lines of the movie are, I believe in America, right? America's made by fortune. You know, it's essentially, it gives you everything you need to know about why organized crime rose because it is a man telling you, I tried to do everything right. 
I tried to follow the law. And when I needed justice, it was deprived from me. And, and the whole thing with the rise of organized crime in Italy to begin with and later in America is that not to get too into the weeds of history because uh, people are going to yell at me in the survey next at the end of the season. But, you know, Garibaldi unites Italy. And suddenly you've got the, you know, the much more wealthy northerners and the Italian, the government's still kind of siding with the Northerners. Sicilians, people like that in the, in the lower classes are not getting justice, you know, from the police or the law enforcement. There's nothing like that. So they turn to these fixers and these organizers to help them. And one thing that's interesting about The Godfather that I thought about watching at this time that I hadn't really considered before is this film is, starts out in 1945, right? So not only are we just dealing with the aftermath of World War II, but in addition to that, we're less than 20 years from the executions of Sacco and Vanzetti which is like the peak of anti-Italian sentiment in America. And I, yeah. I do think that that's maybe something that's harder for modern viewers to get, like, because of course now um, there's not really, you know, Italian Americans are so ubiquitous. There's not really Italian, like anti-Italian sentiment in America, unless you watch that one Columbus day episode of the Sopranos. Like that's really not a thing, but in 1945, I mean, you know, less than 20 years prior, the, you know, the government executed two Italian guys for essentially being Italian. Like, I mean, that shit, is a shadow that hangs over this movie. Irish and Italian need not apply. I mean, you know, yeah, Catholics yeah. need not apply. You know, this it, it, and like you pointed out, you you took I forget when, maybe a year ago or something about Italian was its own like checkbox on what was it race? That's my yeah my um, my great grandfather. Um, they say on his on his draft card, um, he is not categorized as white. He is categorized as Italian. They don't check off white. So that was a different, obviously a different time back then. But I, I say all that to say it's just it's it is very interesting to consider that Coppola and he talks about this in his commentary that he wasn't just interested in telling a, a mob story. He's interested in telling a, a period of time. He loves if you listen to the commentary on this, he loves pointing out that the cars had the little a in the window because of the gas rationing right he loves the he claims you know the scene where clemenza is walking you through making sauce yeah he yeah. talks about uh well he makes a joke in the commentary where he says you know i always put recipes in my early movies so even if the movie wasn't good you got something out of it <laughs> but my little anecdote i love there is he says i sent the script to puzo with clemenza giving you the entire recipe for the sauce and then he talks about, you know, you add this and you brown the garlic and you brown the sausage. And Puzo only sent him back one note, which is he crossed out brown and wrote fry. And his explanation was, gangsters don't brown, they fry. <laughs> and there's just something about that that I, I love so dearly. I, I think, you know, you were right, obviously, in your video, Patrick, you talk about Coppola with family. So much of the details that he has just come from his own life. You know, the reason that Clemenza's wife asks for cannolis in the first place is because he remembered his dad. Anytime he would bring home cannolis, it was a big deal. And if he didn't get a cannoli, uh, that meant he'd done something wrong. I will say this, because you talked about your buddy Francis, uh, you know, your good friend Francis. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, you know, uh, he did answer a question of yours. Now, it's worth noting. Um, you know, you did not say in the video what question you asked, and you're not going to say it here either. Save that. You know, hang on to that. Charge people for that. I think that's that's what I said. Make that a new Patreon tier as well. Yeah. Only at a certain level do you get to hear what question you ask. 
and I'm going to have to really try to my best to remember everything he said. Make it make it like Carly Simon saying who she wrote You're So Vain about. Like, just hang on to that and only give it away, you know, for a high price. Um, that's, that's really good. I, I, I will say, without giving anything away, uh, it, it, it was a really good, interesting, thoughtful answer. And I was, I was really happy with it. Which is surprising because I believe your question was, Twixt, what was that about? Yeah. Just, yeah, those <laughs> Uh, tell you me about that New York story. Brought you for a while. <laughs> what was that? What was that New York story segment going on about? What was what was going on there? You, so I get it. You, you bought your daughter an Eloise book. I understand, but like, okay. So um, so Jack, what did we do to deserve that? <laughs> That's that. Yeah. Ugh. I I honestly, uh, here's the thing. I bet I can tell you exactly what his answers to both of those questions would be. I mean, the New York story is one. I. I mean, like, you know, screenplay credit, it just says by Francis and Sophia. Yeah. I think it was just a thing where, like, you know, he, he like, Sophia was, like, young and showing an interest in this stuff. And he was, like, she was, like, 17 or so, something like that. I yeah. He's, like, w- w- like, you know, do you have any idea? And she, I, I bet it was just that he wanted to make his daughter happy and do what she wanted to do and make it a whole family production. And I think with Jack, it was probably just, I wanted to work with Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, and that's what was there. I, I <laughs> like, it really just, again, his whole thing of just like, it's about the people and like yeah. the relationships with the people. I really think that's probably what would be his answers for both of these. That said, if I could hear him talk for like an hour about either of those movies, I would I would love that because uh weird weird movies. I I also think there's something to you know, you talked about it earlier. I know we're jumping around in the film, but that's also because I assume everyone has wa- listening to this has watched the film. Wait, can I um, can I can I add d- yeah. d- general question Please. for for both of you guys? Yeah. So, yeah. uh fa- favorite supporting uh, favorite uh non corleone character in the movie as in corleone is not their last name tom i'm gonna let you go first because i feel like i'm gonna get some flack for my answer so of course you're gonna get flack for your answer you son of a bitch um yeah i think i'm gonna have to go with uh mccluskey the cop sorry to be clear i i I just mean like you know character without the last name corleone like not it doesn't have to be like totally outside of like the family business, but it could still be. McCluskey. Yeah, no, 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 no. But, I, I uh, understand you're setting us up and letting us know that we have the opportunity to say uh, Tom Hagen or Carlo, but please know we're broken people, so this okay. is just how we're gonna go. <laughs> uh, well, because I'm, I am gonna, I wanted to try to get out of the family, so I won't even count Tom for that. Uh, also, Carlo, hello, Carlo. He deserves to get thrown out of the. Yeah the life of, yeah, of existence yep. uh but I, I i i love mccluskey because i mean sterling hayden's great and he just brings a real repugnant energy to this disgusting cop which is just you know remember a time where you could just make a movie that was like yeah cops suck like we all just know this and, the and everyone year, was like yeah not just that the year after the french connection wins best picture and in a scene where one of the actual french connection guys is in it but also French Connection was a movie that was like, hey, Gene Hackman, this guy's a cop. He's kind of a moron, and he gets one of his own killed at the end because he's kind of a fucking moron. Um, as for me, I'll say this, and I was thinking, 
I my answer would have been different before this recent rewatch, but truly one of the ones that sticks out to me is Enzo the Baker. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, really, like, because up until that point, and this is a weird thing for me, there's two things, no matter how many times I revisit The Godfather, there's two things for me. One, and this is going to sound dumb, but it's just instinct. Uh, every time it starts and Diane Keaton shows up, I go, oh, right, she's in this. Same, yeah. And because the reason is, five years later, like, after Annie Hall, Diane Keaton is never going to be in a movie like that. Well, she disappears like, for, like, an hour and a half. No, but what I what I mean is that after Annie, I mean, Annie Hall is, like, the same year as Looking for Mr. Goodbar, I think. But, but, but after Annie Hall, Diane Keaton just becomes Diane Keaton, the idea that we have of Diane Keaton. And it's kind of like there's something about when you watch, like, early Nicolas Cage films where he's kind of like a fun doofus. Like where you're like, once, yeah, where you go, once he becomes Nicolas Cage, he's not going to get to be that because he's then Nicolas. With Diane Keaton, I was just in it. But the other thing is, I think I remember this movie and I've seen it so many times that it shouldn't still affect me. But the precision, the clockwork, like almost Michael Mann-esque precision of everything that happens when Michael enters the hospital and that moment when Enzo shows up and Michael's saying, all right, stand there, put your hand in your jacket like you're holding a gun. It's it's still tense. I watched this movie for the first time more than 20 years ago and it's still tense, that moment. And I think part of it is the guy playing Enzo, even though he's only in it for one moment, he sells that nervousness so well. Pacino is in full military mode, you know, as he's he's not cracking under pressure. That moment works so well for me, I think. And and it's because there's just this... Enzo is great because he tells you everything you need to know about the understanding in the community, in the Italian community, about the Corleones. That even though he's a baker, when Michael says you need to look like you're holding a gun, he doesn't hesitate. That's the respect that this family commands in that community. I, it's just a, such a great little moment. Do you have a favorite non-Corleone character, Patrick? Since you, I do. I actually, b- before I even mention that, I do want to actually just like build on what you're saying, just about the, you know, the precision and tension in that scene because. It is funny talking about The Godfather because it's it's one of those movies where, like, even people who haven't seen it basically know, like, two-thirds of the movie just because it's just, like, it, you know, it, everything about it has just filtered into the public consciousness and, like, everything that has referenced it since then. And so it, it is kind of easy to forget that, like, there are these scenes that are, like, that, that do have this this very, like— in te- like exciting like kind of visceral quality to them whether it's like the hospital scene or like i mean uh, like every time you know I, I i watch the scene in the restaurant you know where where michael like takes out you know uh Salazzo, i'm i'm always just struck by just like that slow push in on pacino's mm-hmm. face and like just the sound design of the train outside and just like how how tense it actually is, and just a thing this, that the movie does so well of just in certain scenes, like like right before uh, Apollonia gets blown up in the car, of just creating this 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 sudden paranoia of like something seems slightly off, and like 
you know, looking around the different characters and like who is who is the person here that is like you know that we shouldn't be trusting that we had been trusting up 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 to now and like it's not just a like a stately drama it is like it does give you the the excitement of like a gangster movie uh and that's you know part of like i again this is why it is a classic because it, it gives you it gives you everything you have like the best of all of these things and this is a long way of saying my favorite character is clemenza mm-hmm. hell yeah uh, I just, it, it was just, you know, it was occurring to me on, on this new rewatch that I'm just like, right from the beginning when you see him just all sweaty and dancing at the wedding. <laughs> uh, just just he, drinking from a jug of wine. Oh my god. He's so much fun. But then, and also, that you know, and then there's the thing where, especially as it goes on, when it's like, you, you know, the, the cannoli scene is a classic for an obvious reason. It It really is so good and and again it's the kind of thing like in that scene it seems like he might die uh because he he seems like he's just kind of like like the dumb slob yeah and 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 instead it's like oh no he's like he's the guy who has has figured out a really good way to take out a traitor he is and and then you know that they have the conversation like at the funeral like like near the end about like thinking like you know is, is, is it tom who was like I, I thought Clemenza was going to be the one that betrayed us. Yeah. And, uh, and he's not. And then he gets like maybe the, the, the coolest moment when they're taking out the five family. I mean, the, the elevator with the shotgun, it rules, it rules. He's oh, and just... the, I, I, I think the best moment is him in the back seat when Carlo gets in. Hello, Carlo. Oh my God. I mean, that scene where I, the way it's shot, where, the camera's just mounted on the hood of the car, and the car is yeah. driving, and it's just this, like, locked-off, unbroken take as, like, Carlo's foot is getting right up in the lens, and it doesn't yeah. cut away, the camera doesn't move. It's, uh, it's, it, and yeah. It's just, it's a brilliant, like, low-key callback to the take the cannoli scene, because right. uh, Paulie kind of knows something's up when he and he tells the other guy uh go on the other side Uh, i can't see out the rear view uh the mirror and carlo gets in the back seat and lo and behold clemenza's sitting right behind him and carlo's too much of a dipshit to realize why is clemenza behind me Mm -hmm. yep i i mean really the the big lesson of the godfather is just uh always like be very careful about the back seat of the car <laughs> also don't get in cars with multiple italians because yeah. if there's one okay they can't do much it's dangerous for them but if there's an <laughs> italian another italian in the car with you especially if they're in the back seat and shotguns open <laughs> yeah, run actually We're i'm putting gonna go and, I'm going to go further yeah. than that because Apollonia dies in a car and she's alone in the car. The less well, of the she Godfather... is an Italian, so. Well, she is, but I was going to say just don't get in a car. Don't get in a car. If you're <laughs> Italian, don't get in a car. Don't worry about it. Also, to bring us back to a book thing, there's a deleted scene that's from the book that they shot but is not in the movie. You can find it on the disc of Michael going to Sicily and killing uh, um, Fabrizio. Mm-hmm. Just thought I Just thought I'd throw that out there. It's it you know the thing that I think is interesting is that you brought up way earlier Patrick you brought up the time jump right and that the other lapse of time in the film the going to the mattresses sequence is a full montage uh, even though apparently Coppola wanted that to be where the intermission happened 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted it to be uh, Michael kills Salazzo and then intermission, and then we come back and the montage eases us back in. And Evans uh, apparently said, "Fuck you! I'm not putting the intermission in the movie." So we get that. <laughs> but the other time jump is that moment where, like you mentioned, we see K. Michael gets out of the car and surprises us by saying it's been more than a year. The thing that I think is interesting about that, and uh, one of the special features on the Blu-ray, Steven Spielberg is on talking about how much he loves that time jump. And the reason for that is that the rest of the movie, we've been with Michael, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, we take time to see the other people, but we see Michael, and what we see about Michael is he is trying to get away from the business he is trying to keep his family at an arm's length. He is a compassionate guy. He has emotions. You know, he wants to protect his family, but he's not interested in getting into the business. He he still has a, a soul. Um, so much so that he is so removed from family affairs that he finds out his father's been shot because of a newspaper. Right? Right. He's leaving Radio City with Kay, and she's the one that notices. We see him in Italy, and we see his heartbreak in Italy. And even then, like, you know, he falls in love with a girl and he's sincere. He's got a heart, you know, he's a real person. And then when he gets out of the car and he tells Kay it's been more than a year, you don't know what happened in that year, but something's different about it. And Spielberg highlighted that as like Pacino really sells you on the idea of whatever happened in that year, whatever spark was in him is gone. That that is he is now back and he is now even though you know Vito hasn't died yet or anything like that, like he is now Don Corleone. Like that's well, just because, uh, unless I'm mistaken, we don't see him until that point. Uh, the last time we see him before that point, I should say, is when Apollonia dies, right? Yes, correct. So that's basically all we need to know is that Apollonia dying was like the last straw for his humanity. Well, and I it mean... leaves you to wonder what happened over that year. You know. Right, I, I, kind of, kind of in simplest terms, like the like the first Godfather, or even you could actually like two as well. It's basically the story about like this guy who's like a pretty good guy, just losing his soul, uh, yeah. like like because of and and like I think one of the things that's that's so cool in this movie is kind of just like watching the like the steps for Michael to go from like who he is at the beginning of the movie to the end where he you know, lies to his wife about killing his brother-in-law and, and has just become the person he never wanted to be. And it, and it is, and it's like, it is these like slow little steps where, you know, like the thing, you know, uh, taking out Salazzo, it, it seemed like, you know, basically like a, a one-time thing to help his family in this really difficult situation. But then then in, then in Italy, it's like maybe he's found a new life there where he can kind of put the stuff behind him and, you know, he gets married and it's all going to be okay. And then, you know, she dies and, and that's really kind of the point where he realizes like – there is like no chance for like a a life outside of this. Like all I really have now is my family and to return to the business. And, and what's great with the time jump is that's, you know, cause like you look at, think of the Godfather is one of the all time great final shots in a movie. Mm -hmm. And it is like, you know, you're looking in on who seemed like our protagonist from Kay's perspective. And then, and, and this, this time jump here, it then kind of reframes this, you know, like the final hour of the movie as 
to an extent, like, more from her perspective than it had been before. Like, we're suddenly seeing Michael as she is seeing him after, like, all this time away. And, you know, she's seeing him as a new person in the way that we are, too. And, yeah, I think the Spielberg guy is onto something with this this observation. There's something, too, about, I think, the way that there's that great scene uh, toward the end where Vito is, is, you know, of course, that, you know, Governor Corleone, Senator Corleone, when he's talking to Michael and telling him he didn't want this for him, right? And obviously Coppola said he framed this as a story of legacy, a story of secession. The thing that really strikes you is that one thing that's interesting is, is Vito is always confident in what he believes, right? He's confident in his convictions. He is, he, he knows what he wants. He knows what he believes. You do feel like when he talks about the other sons, or even as we see the other sons, it was always going to be Michael that ran the family because Fredo certainly can't. Fredo's a pushover. And even Sonny, I know we characterize him as a hothead, and that's also a factor. But another interesting thing is if you watch those scenes, the scene where they're talking to Salazzo, and then the scene later when the discussion, Sonny just takes sides with whatever person is making a point in the room. When Tom yeah. Hagen is laying out for Vito, this is why we should do what he says. This is why we should get to narcotics. Sonny is like, hey, dad, he's got a point. I mean, listen, he's got. But then later when Vito's chewing him out, Sonny jumps in and goes, wait, so you're trying to tell me. Like, he's not a leader. And the only person who has that skill is Michael in part because he's a soldier. He's trained. When we see him at the hospital, he's got that military precision. In a way, when Vito is saying to him, I never wanted this for you, unfortunately, it does feel as though in trying to get Michael away from all this, he helped give him the tools that he ultimately needs to take over the family, you know? So what well, you're saying is Vito he... is playing some 4D chess here. <laughs> oh, he, oh, he's he's playing some 4D chess. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's 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 he basically kind of made a young version of himself because it's not like Vito was made for this. No, it just happened. He had to do this. He literally had no other choice, but to become the Godfather because, you know, he gets run out of his own country because of what his older brother does and what his mother does. He comes to America and like this kind of middle manager in the, in the mob is like asserting too much power in the neighborhood. And he, he's got a family. He can't survive what this guy's demanding of him. So he has to take this fucking guy out. Not just for himself, but also because he gener- genuinely, it feels, seems like, worries about his own community, which we get kind of in the first one, that he is different than these other guys, which is, you know, a bit of a, you know, fiction that the movie's taking with these mob guys, but, you know, working within the movie. It's that by trying to not make Michael perfect for this world he did which is what the world did to him and uh you know that's one of the great fucking shakespearean things about this story that you know is hard to argue with hard to really say is like i don't know it's just <laughs> like i said francis and mario they they worked some magic on this one and i mean you know there's also the element of um in a way part of what this movie should get credit for and i think it does but is that Coppola knows not only what to tell you, but what to not tell you. 
uh, what to let you infer. You know, we complain a lot about modern movies and how they don't trust the audience to figure anything out for themselves. And also the way that modern audiences talk about movies show why we can't trust them to figure it out themselves uh, yeah. because any ambiguity is open to bad takes. But something about, like, for example, understanding Michael's relationship to his family is more than just the line where he says at the wedding, it's my family, Kay, it's not me. Because when he tells Kay the story, just freely tells her, yeah, so, you know, uh, Clemenza put a gun to his head, or Luca Prazzi got a gun to his head and told him either his signature and his brains would end up on the contract. The fact that Kay is not immediately responding with, Jesus Christ, uh, what yeah. are you talking about? means that he has told her prior to this what his family is and what they do and all of that, that she is aware that as much as he says, it's my family, Kay, it's not me, he has made some kind of peace with what they are. He has not actually done enough to distance himself from this to potentially not be drawn into this web. You know? And also, what does he do to run away from them? He joins another violent familial... Yeah organization that's all about the bond they share in blood i mean it's not like he became an accountant or he ran away to fucking los angeles and opened up a, a an experimental acting studio he became a fucking soldier which is literally what these men call the men under them our soldiers it's also i i want to throw out like a couple more things before we wrap up because obviously patrick we've taken up so much of your time and i'm so grateful that you've, you've given it to oh, us no, it, it, um, it's, it's been a pleasure um but a couple things before we get into that we always end on the oscars but a couple notes i want to add which are real quick hits mostly number one the actor that plays Kahlo. Uh, in the film is in a number of Pasolini films and The Shortest Day by Sergio Carpucci and the Oscar-winning Mama Roma. Meanwhile, uh, Corrado Giappa, uh, or Gaipa, who plays Don Tomasino in the film, is the Italian dubbing voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I just want ah. you guys to know that that happened. Uh, <laughs> another thing worth noting, a moment that I love toward the end, when Michael first proposes to Johnny Fontaine that he perform at the casino five times a year, Fontaine has a brief moment of reticence, but he doesn't say no. And I think there's something about after watching this violent, bloody conflict and everything else that's going on in this movie, to know that Fontaine is that kind of old school guy who understands this is not a request. Yeah. There's no negotiating. I think is great. And the last thing, I always forget that Alex Rocco, the actor who plays Mo Green, is the voice of Roger Myers Jr. on The Simpsons. What? Yeah, go back, rewatch the Vegas scene, and then picture him going, "My father invented Mister Zip." Oh just my god! I I mean, I always just just assumed that you know Roger Myers was you know like one of a billion like I don't know uh, Hank Azaria voices, Hank Azaria or, or yeah. Harry Shearer or something. Like, oh my god! Nope. One uh, one last thing I want to I want to throw out to the floor for you guys, and I want to hear your thoughts on last season. Amongst the 25 films we have to talk about, we have to talk about Gone with the Wind, right? And one of the things that you have to think about is Gone with the Wind was so big, right? It was so massive. It's this cultural touchstone. And for my grandparents' generation and even my parents' generation, or I should say our parents' generation and all that, it's an endlessly quoted film. It's, an end it's, it's a ubiquitous movie, right? It was the biggest movie of all time. It was referenced a thousand times over. And I was thinking about how that doesn't really it doesn't exist in that way anymore, right? Most people our age probably haven't even seen it. I, I honestly have not seen Gone with the Wind. It's, it's. I mean, you I, know, Tom I, I, only I saw will. it for this show. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, but the thing that struck me was 
it was considered for its day the great American epic, right? It was this thing that was like it. It was the thing that people pointed to and said, you know, Gone with the Wind. It was a joke, you know. I mean, in in a good way, it was a punchline of like, it's the most successful film. It's ubiquitous. I was thinking about the fact that in the way that Gone with the Wind for its generation was the great American epic, the quintessential American epic. Do you think that part of the reason why Gone with the Wind does not have that resonance now is because Godfather has supplanted it as the new, endlessly quoted, endlessly referenced great American epic? Do you think that Godfather has supplanted Gone with the Wind in the cultural consciousness in terms of how much it is quoted, how much it is parodied, how much, like Patrick, you noted, like, even if people haven't seen it, they know it. That's that's a really interesting question because, so for instance, even me not having seen Gone with the Wind, like, parts of it I've seen are just, like, you know, shots from it. It does have a, a like, a, a, you know, grand, like, epic, like, romantic quality of, like, you know, people, like, posed in front of, like, big bold sunsets and stuff like that like it, it it very much like checks off like these boxes for what really what we think of as like an epic and what's interesting about the godfather is that it doesn't do those things it's never showy like it is an epic in terms of like the the scope of the film and like the you know the, the themes and ideas in there and like you know like like the time that passes and it's you know it's set in the past of course but it doesn't like do you know what i mean like it it doesn't necessarily you know you know meet the the the, the, the qualifications for epic the way that like gone with the wind or like a david lean movie do and but but that said it it, it is you know still a great american epic and it is also just it is one of those rare movies that is both a massive mainstream success that everyone sees, but that also is universally agreed upon as like, this is a great, important thing. Because like, I mean, like in terms of like even that decade, you know, after the God, like there's the Godfather and there's like Star Wars, which obviously is like the most famous movie of all time. Uh, and was, you know, got like a Best Picture Oscar nomination, stuff like that. But that is so generally regarded as like part of popular cinema. Uh, and The Godfather like straddles both worlds. And mm-hmm. and yeah, I I think, I mean, it's funny, Gone with the Wind, I still, I think still remains as like that touchstone, even for people like me who haven't seen it. Um, but I think this is a long way of saying I'm not sure I have an answer to your question, but maybe. Tom, do you want to actually address the Gone with the Wind question? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think pretty strongly it did that. Uh, you know, I feel like, I mean, there's probably a hundred reasons why that's the case. Um, I think it's mainly because it came at a time uh, where the country was getting a little darker in its thinking and that that kind of mindset hasn't changed anytime soon like gone with the wind you know for us kind of fucked up i guess as the politics of it are by focusing on a you know plantation owner and all that and it has this like kind of bittersweet ending but there's like an optimism and a hope to it where this is kind of a clear clear-eyed but cynical movie about how america's broken and how it's all about money and how everything can be corrupted by it and how our souls 
uh, aren't safe by the chase for money and power and how our family, we can destroy our own families by chasing money and power, even if it's for the right reasons, like what Vito's done, you know, and then that doubles down in Godfather too. You know, he kills his own brother, his, his, uh, wife leaves him, you know, borts her own baby because she doesn't want to bring another Corleone into the world. I think it just became at such a right time after a decade where president was assassinated and, you know, civil rights leaders were getting assassinated and the, you know, the hippie dream of the sixties died in 69. Like we, everybody says with Sharon Tate and Altamont and everything, Vietnam was still raging when Godfather comes out. And, and, you know, that shit still to this day. I mean, we just came through four years of Trump, uh, a, a decades-long war that's just technically ended, even though the Middle East is still a shit show. Money is a bigger problem than it's ever been. You know, no, people can't even buy fucking houses anymore. You know, p- people's families are being torn apart because of politics now. Everything's dark. Like, there's no hope anymore. And The Godfather feels like the movie that came at the time that really laid all that down of maybe the American dream's dead if it ever existed to begin with. That's that's an interesting point, Tom. Because, I, I mean, it's worth noting, again, the opening scene, the first line of the movie is, I believe in America. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's worth noting in terms of the Oscars, obviously this won Best Picture. The other nominees that year were Cabaret, Deliverance, The Immigrants, and Sounder. Now, I spent the day yesterday trying to verify this, and I can tell you guys, fun fact, this is one of only two years where every film uh, that was nominated for Best Picture that is eligible for the National Film Registry is in the registry. Every, uh, it's, yep. Even All Sounder? The M- yep, Sounder just got in this past year. Wow. it ju- Sounder just got in. Uh, for those who are curious about that, you can... Uh, Listen to our live, real-time reactions to the registry selections. Uh, Tom and I yell a lot during it, so check it out, <laughs> folks. Um, you should hear the jubilance when Nightmare on Elm Street gets in. We're, we're just—it's a—it's a time. Nightmare on Elm Street when Richard Pryor's stand-up oh, well, gets Richard, in. Yes. No, the big excitement is that uh, so Patrick. Uh, the way we end our show, uh, you know, later on is we each episode ends with Tom and I picking films that we think should be in the registry, and then we send our nominations. And uh, we got one in this year, and it was the most excited I have felt in years. What was it? I nominated Watermelon Woman. And it was oh, one of those ones that, like, okay. Kyle and Tom were both like, I've, I've not really, I don't really know, I don't know. And then that was the one they picked, and I was elated. Uh, that's a beautiful movie. Recommend it. Um, I, I, I hear but, it's great. I have not seen it. Yeah, it's, we got lucky enough. It was, for a while, it was hard to find, and then while I worked at Alamo, we screened we screened it in 35 millimeter and that was like a day where i happily gave up the second half of my shift and just went and watched it <laughs> nice i know it was uh was it in 2020 that it it was on the criterion channel i don't know if it's still there i it i probably was i i regrettably uh have not had the criterion channel for very long so i don't know too much about their lineup per se but okay. it's definitely one of those ones that that deserves more recognition but so uh, other nominees, Cabaret Deliverance, The Immigrant Sounder. The only one not in the registry is The Immigrants because that's a Swedish film. But uh, the other four Best Picture nominees from that year are all in the registry. But here's an interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize. It was nominated for Best Director, but Coppola did not win that year. He lost to Bob Fosse for Cabaret. Uh, Marlon Brando did win Best Actor for the film. 
However, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino were all nominated for Best Supporting Actor and all lost to Joel Grey for Cabaret. That, Film did I mean, win Best uh, uh, yeah. I was going to say, we, we all know the whole like choice of you know submitting people as like lead or supporting is always a weird thing, but truly wild that Pacino was supporting. It's very, yeah. I, I, wa- I wonder how much of that truly had to do with just the fact that be, even though he's in so much of the movie, he was not well known at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that was kind of the idea was, all right, this is the movie starring Marlon Brando. He's on the poster. And then look at these three young bucks that are popping up in this picture. Uh, but they all lose to Joel Grey for Cabaret. Film one best adapted screenplay. It lost best costume design to the movie Travels with My Aunt, a Maggie Smith comedy. Uh it lost best sound to Cabaret and lost best editing to Cabaret. So despite The Godfather being the big triumph and making all the money, it didn't actually win that many Oscars. It didn't have a big sweep. And as I noted earlier in the episode, it was not even nominated for best score, uh, which cleared the way for the Charlie Chaplin film Limelight that had originally come out decades prior but got re-released to win best original score. The Oscars are weird. You don't say. Yeah, that's how that all uh shook out which is why godfather part two winning and and coppola getting his oscar then i think is is a very validating thing i also get the impression from evans's book and some of coppola's letters that when godfather came out there was a bit of talk around town that perhaps coppola was not the driving force behind that movie like you guys remember in the 90s when the talk was that ben affleck and matt damon didn't write goodwill hunting Yes. You remember that? And how everybody was like, well, Kevin Smith surely wrote it. Just from the way it's talked about, I get the vibe that there were people who, with Godfather, were spreading the stories of, well, you know, Evans really saved that in the edit. You know, Evans really, well, this and that. Now he was a young guy and this and that, which I think makes conversation winning the Palme d'Or and then part two winning picture and director, I think, a real big win for Coppola. I could be wrong, but that's just the impression I get. What do you guys think? Uh, y- yes. I I mean, I'll never know what exactly the Oscar conversations were like uh, in 1972, or what even like the, you know, I guess the atmosphere was around the awards back then. But uh, I feel like if there was any doubt that, that, that like maybe, you know, th- this young director got lucky but doesn't deserve most of the credits, like the next two years kind of erased all of that. I mean, I, I'm I'm here looking at just the the uh, the list of Oscars for Godfather Part Two, where Francis wins picture, director, screenplay, yeah. and uh, and so yeah, I don't I don't think anyone was claiming that uh, you know the producer saved that one in the edit. Yeah, it's it's again, kid stays in the picture. He takes too much credit. In fact, he claim in Evans's storytelling of it, he claims Coppola brought him. Uh, a cut of the movie that was only two hours and six minutes long. And Evans told him, you know, you were shooting an epic, but you brought me a trailer. Uh, and then Coppola retells the same story, but says, Evans told me it couldn't be over two hours. So I brought him a two hour cut and then he got mad that it wasn't more than two hours. So who knows? You know, maybe, I, uh, you know, uh, I, I will say it just makes me more excited to find out what the movie and miniseries do with these stories, because there is clearly <laughs> so much material there. 
<laughs> Cannot wait. And on that note, Patrick, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm so glad uh, that you came on. Really, to talk thank you this. so much, man. It was amazing. Guys, it, it, it was such a pleasure. Thanks for asking And me. for, at this point, claiming the record. Uh, I would have to imagine once we add bumpers and possible ad reads. Is this your for claiming the record ever? Correct. Claiming, claiming oh the episode. God. You have... And better yet, well, here's the better thing. Re my question earlier. Do you know what episode you on The Godfather beat out for longest episode? Uh, Gone with the Wind. Really? Yep. Uh, Yeah. Who was your guest on that one? Uh, it was it was friends of ours actually, um, uh, Justin Jones and and Lapita Jones because uh, I sent it to them and they said, well, we're Southern, so we might as well tackle that. And I went, no one else wants to fall on that grenade, so yep, yeah. let's try it, let's tackle that. I will say the uh, the revelation that this is your longest episode. So uh, a little bit of backstory. Well, last night I was a guest on a podcast, and uh, where I went in. Uh, it was an, it was an episode about the Matrix Resurrections. Do you want to so do you want to plug them? We're we're more than happy to plug other people's shows. Go right yeah, ahead. sure. If you want more of me talking, um, <laughs> last night I think this is out next week. I think next week there will be a three hour episode of uh, the only podcast about movies um, <laughs> that I I am the guest on, and and in that one. So here's the thing: over the years, I've noticed a lot of the time when I'm a, a guest on podcasts. We finish recording, and the hosts go, wow, that was our longest episode ever. And it, I have done this so many times because I can't shut up uh, that I finally, over like the last six months, just started embracing it. And so like I went into that recording last night, and I said, like as soon as they introduced me, I just said, guys, full disclosure, uh, I'm telling you right now, this is going to be your longest episode ever because I have a lot to say about this movie. And uh, sure enough, it was. Uh <laughs> That said, I didn't come into this one expecting it to be, but uh, I really should know myself better, and uh, I'm sorry that I no, can't listen, shut I up. Think, listen, it's, can I tell you, it's the exact opposite of the last time I actually physically saw you, because the last time <laughs> I saw you was at Comic-Con, and there was a solid 30 seconds of awkward silence as me and the person I was with and you and the person you were with both didn't know which one of us is supposed to walk away now. So I think that's great. Um, yep, yep, yep. That, that just checks the, out. Yep, there was a moment there where neither of us had anywhere to go, and it was just like we'd finished the conversation of, you still want to come on the podcast? Yep, absolutely, cool. All right, I'm going to go look at Artist Alley. Okay. And and, so, and now skip ahead, uh, uh, and two two hours of talk. <laughs> uh, and there was still, the amazing thing about this film is there's still so much more that could be said, you know? There are going to be so many listeners. I'm I'm going to get a DM from... Uh, from Jackson Boren or one of our other listeners telling me, like, why didn't you talk about this? And I'll be like, I there's so much. Um, shout it's, out to it, Jackson. It, it's the Godfather. Like, here's what I can say to anyone who's mad that we didn't cover certain things. <laughs> I promise you, there are like a hundred other podcasts that probably talked about that thing in the Godfather. Yeah, this is this movie is on uh, not what you would call under discussed. <laughs> no, it's not. You are certainly welcome back for, for future seasons, for season three and beyond, for anything, whether a much-talked-about movie or a not-talked-about movie. Um, you are certainly welcome back. This was a lot of fun, and I am really glad you came back for this. Thank you so much. Me too. And I, I'd love to come back sometime. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah. Um, if you want more of me talking about movies, you should check out 
my YouTube channel where I uh, it's called Patrick H. Willems. Um, and uh, as we've mentioned repeatedly on this episode, <laughs> in the fall of 2020, I made uh, a two-part little uh, duology. Know, let's not say that. Uh, just a, a, a two-part little video about my close personal friend Francis uh, and, and his whole filmography. And there's a lot more talk about his wine. So check those out. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much. And you know, again, if you end up doing a two-part video on, um, I don't know, the director of Mary Pickford's Poor Little Rich Girl, you know, please know uh, next season we're open to you. You know, oh, I'll 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 keep that in mind. Uh, you know, it's not likely, but it could happen. <laughs> hey, or you know, season four, uh, if you do a video on D.W. Griffith, there's a D.W. Griffith film in season four that no one's jumping on yet. So you know. Just I, I respect how you know you're planning it's it's the it is it is the most terrifying it is the sort of damocles over my head in terms of bookings um mm. just a nightmare uh because we all know what well, it is this just makes me kind of want john do singleton it. put it in oh you sure uh I, I, you sure okay, you want look, that on look, your seo patrick i uh, i don't actually you know what i don't want to commit to anything just now uh i, I, yeah. I got enough on my plate but that said you know, the the more unappealing and dangerous you make it sound, the more intrigued I get. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. And everybody listening, stick around. We will be right back with Tom and I's nominations for what should be added to the National Film Registry. Stick around. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfred Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So my pick for the registry, I was thinking about The Godfather is the most important film of, of its decade, the biggest hit of 1972. But there are two movies that are huge, consequential, game-changing films in 1972. When The Godfather was being made, there was concern about it glamorizing the mafia. It was considered a dangerous film, an inappropriate film. Obviously now has critical acclaim and respect. Uh, there's another film in 1972 that uh, to many is still considered a, a dangerous film and a dangerous type of film. Here's the thing to remember. The Godfather was not just the best picture winner. It was the number one highest grossing film of 1972. But here's a little trivia for you guys. Uh, the number two highest grossing film was The Poseidon Adventure. The number three highest grossing film, What's Up, Doc? The number four highest grossing film, Deliverance. But the number five highest grossing film of the year 1972 was Deep Throat. Deep Throat, a pornographic film, grossed $45 million, at least of its legal gross, and sold 26470588 tickets all on a budget of $47,500. It is impossible to overstate how massive this movie was. Ralph Blumenthal of the New York Times called it porno chic because upper-middle-class couples were going to theaters to see this. Famous celebrities were 
seen going to see it and proudly admitted going to see it. Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, Jack Nicholson, Johnny Carson talked about going to see Deep Throat. Barbara Walters went to go see Deep Throat. It was a phenomenon uh, like you couldn't imagine. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there's a great footage uh, from a newsreel of an old woman going, uh, yeah, an 80 year old woman saying she went to see it because she wanted to see a dirty movie. It was a huge movie. But even if you set all that aside, it's obviously echoed in history because Howard Simons of the Washington Post chose Deep Throat as the code name for the Watergate informant, who was later revealed to be FBI agent Mark Felt. But but Deep Throat was for decades the alias given to Woodward and Bernstein. It is why uh, most people know that term uh, in terms of like, you know, it, it just burned into the historic consciousness. I also think that the National Film Registry is about not just... It, the National Film Registry is different from an AFI or any of these greatest films of all time list because it's about films that are culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Well, there's no arguing... Much in the same way that some harmful and traumatic films that are in the registry, uh, like A Birth of a Nation or as a Pruder film, are in there. Uh, there's no arguing that this film had a massive impact on American culture. And if you are going to represent the fact that a massive part of the American film industry involves adult films, even our subject today, Francis Ford Coppola, directed a number of softcore films in his day. If you are going to reflect that, this is the one to do it because of its its cultural impact. It has a cultural impact unlike uh, unlike any other film, really, considering uh, its its topic and all that. That said, you know the the woman who starred in the film, uh, Linda Lovelace, uh, Linda Borman was her actual name, uh, has you know had gone on the record years later talking about how she was abused and forced into doing it and said that every time somebody watches the film they're watching her be assaulted as a result i'm not going to advocate for the actual film deep throat to be in the national film registry not to mention how many people would lose their shit if their tax dollars went to preserve a pornographic film but what i am going to advocate for is the 2005 documentary inside deep throat uh, which reflects on the cultural phenomenon of Deep Throat from 1972 and puts it in the proper context uh, while still showing terribly explicit portions of the film and discussing what a massive thing this was in our culture, what an awakening it was, and and also its connections to uh, organized crime, its connections to sexual liberation, uh, and the l cultural lightning rod that it was. Talking to everybody from Gerard Damiano, the director, to Wes Craven pops up as a talking head in the film. Uh, I think it's it's crucial to preserve at least some context for the name that is now burned into Watergate and White House history. And at this moment in film culture, when the thing that we had locked away and pretended, you know, was not part of filmmaking in terms of adult films uh, became undeniable and, and changed everything about the film landscape um, in so many ways. So Inside Deep Throat from 2005 is my pick for the National Film Registry. Good luck at getting in. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's a pretty Mike answer there. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to give a pretty Tom answer and go with them populist mainstream easy choice godfather is one of the best movies of all time maybe the best movie of all time arguments to be made it's 
Coppola's best movie. You can argue that, or Godfather 2, or Conversation, or Apocalypse Now. Either way, whatever. But, if we're talking about my favorite Coppola movie, it might be the one that I'm about to submit for uh, the pick, which is Bram Stoker's Dracula. One of the truly craziest fucking horror movies in just history. Cinema history. It's bananas. Nothing else. It looks like nothing else. It feels like nothing else. It's a crazy, horny, just like phantasmagoric, insane ride that uh, like, I mean, really, nothing else is like it. And it's the last time that Coppola had, and and like, the fact that it was a hit, that it was a popular mainstream hit is crazy when you watch this movie. It's really just, I mean, probably the last time Coppola makes something that really does deserve to be discussed in that kind of conversation. uh, It's just... I, I mean, I, I really don't know what to say. It's a crazy movie. I love it so much. It's one of the best horror movies in the 90s. One of the best movies in the 90s. It's it's a feast for all the senses. And uh, it, like like Deep Throat, it'll never get in. But um, I think Coppola can ha- have another movie or two to kind of show the breadth of what his talent uh, was and what his contributions were to cinema because... I do think Drac- Dracula was an influential movie in many ways, and uh, its its fe- its uh, impact can still be felt today. So, yeah, Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, here's an interesting fact about that, Tom. I just did some looking while I was here. Uh, there are two versions of Ben-Hur in the registry, two versions of Imitation of Life, two versions of The Mark of Zorro. So there are some remakes in the registry, but if you got your druthers, you realize that if if you got your way and you got it in, it would be the only uh, film that has three different versions in the registry. Well, uh, then I know what my next mission is. Because Dracula's in there and Spanish Dracula's in there. So you, you land a third Dracula in there, you've pulled off a feat. Hell yeah. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thanks again to Patrick Willems for joining us. Next week, Patrick Cotner returns to the show to fulfill his destiny to discuss Star Wars Jedi power battles. Oh, and how green was my valley, too, of course. Be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Registry.